very exciting edition of the Magic Sandwich Show, brought to you um, by the kindness of Live Life 8072, who has uh, stepped in for uh, Tony, who unfortunately can't be with us for reasons which are beyond me, but um, we're useless without you, Tony. This is what happens when you don't answer the phone. We're just useless. Um, it's a huge pleasure to welcome the three main backbones of uh, the Magic Sandwich Show, Mr. Aron Ra, uh, Thunderfoot, and Concordance. Welcome, everyone. How are you all doing today? We're going to start off with a sad tale. Both Thunderfoot and Concordance this week have been somewhat unwell and suffering. And in the uh, warm-up to the show, uh, we were talking about um, antibiotics. And I'm going to kick off with this because it seems to be somewhat... Um, topical, I think. Um, we're in danger, are we not, of running out of antibiotics? And if we do, we're in a bit of a problem. Uh, Concordance, well, let's go to you too. Well, Thunder, you wanted to go first. Explain, oh, explain what the situation is and why we might well, have antibiotics. We're not running out of antibiotics. Um, we're just running the risk that they might not be effective for much longer. Um, now that I'll pass over to Concordance. Yeah, so we have really, I think, six antibiotics that form the core of our antibiotic line. And it's, they're families. You know, there's the ampicillin family, for example, the rifampin family. And we've been using them so much since their development for so many reasons. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know, but most cows and chickens and pigs are fed antibiotics as a growth booster. Uh, we use antibiotics now, finding out they're incredibly effective against certain cancers. I don't know why my dino doesn't want to stay on. Um, we're using them for so many things, and now we're seeing the creation of these antibiotic-resistant strains, which is a natural you know, course of evolution. We're overusing them and underusing them at the same time. We're not using them enough to treat the full infection. You get these you know, emergence of uh, resistant strains. But the big deal is that there are now very common pathogens which are resistant to all of those six families of antibiotics. And that means when people are infected with these, you know, Staphylococcus aureus is the classic one, in the course of, say, a, a surgical recovery room, their chances of dying are very high. If someone develops a flesh-eating, you know, necrotic bacterial infection, all we can do is sit back and hope for the best and cut away the tissue as it becomes necrotic. Uh, so this is a very scary thing. It could really result in a change in the way we view healthcare and how we manage healthcare and how we manage uh, chronic diseases. And there's not a strong pipeline of new antibiotics. And there's some discussion going on within the field, within the field of therapeutics and diagnostics, about whether or not we should fund this, make it a, a, like a moonshot type initiative where we develop at least three new antibiotics and keep them on strategic reserve. There are some antibiotics which are currently marked as strategic reserve antibiotics. One of them I know for a fact is a sulfa drug which was released in the 50s and then recalled in the 60s. It's just being sat on by the military for the simple reason that if we ever do get some sort of a mass infection, you know, like a, a Spanish influenza 1917 type strain, uh, but for bacteria that, that becomes pandemic, we would have something we could treat our troops to maintain stability in the country. So the idea is 
what if we had a giant nationalized pipeline and these would be the strategic reserve antibiotics. Of course, I will obtain for all my viewers uh, a special stock, which I'll distribute in the case of the uh, zombie apocalypse or the bacterial apocalypse or whatever it's going to be. Uh, so just another benefit of being a viewer. DPR? Yeah, thank you. I, I want to take a step back there because I'm sure the audience are well-educated in these matters, but I'm not. I'm, I'm very ignorant. Um, help me out. What exactly do antibiotics do? What do, what do they end up? And I think here we're, I'm, I'm asking for an explanation of the difference between germs and viruses, or virum, I think. Just talk, to me, <laughs> talk to me as if I'm very stupid, because I am. Give me so, a, yeah, a, a starter course. We, we really should talk about antimicrobials or, or antibacterials. Um, well, mostly we're talking about antibacterials. There are antiviral drugs, but we rarely call them antibiotics That's a, because viruses really aren't alive. Antiviral drugs are distinctive. We'll set those aside for the minute. Uh, antibacterial drugs mostly interfere in the normal development of specific or broad-scale uh, bacterial functions. So things like, for example, the ability of the the bacteria to make a protein. And we're talking bacteria, of course, or the, the germs that we're talking about, um, usually things like Staphylococcus aureus or uh, various Streptococcus species or Listeria. Um, anyway, uh, antibiotics are basically specifically interfere with things that bacteria do normally that things that our cells don't do. And that's what differentiates them really from something we would just strictly call chemotherapy. You know, chemotherapy is just a poison. It poisons us, it poisons the bacteria, and there are some chemotherapeutic approaches to uh, treating bacterial infections. But in general, we're talking about blocking ribosomal translation or blocking cell division in bacteria or throwing drugs at bacteria that prevent them from doing something they need to do to divide and grow and metabolize. Um, yeah, that's kind of so, uh, yeah, I mean, so the bottom line is there aren't actually a lot of the metabolic pathways between bacteria and us are the same. So obviously, if you block these, you kill the, the host as well as the bacteria. So like like Concordance was saying, you need uh, these pathways that are essentially unique to the bacteria. This is also how the insecticides work. You need a unique pathway to the bacteria, say, for instance, um, and then you can block that and you can kill off the bacteria without killing off the host. Problem comes, of course, is that um, when there is a significant, um, whatever, evolutionary pressure or significant selective pressure to things that can sort of uh, create workarounds for these pathways that you used to be able to block very efficiently, you start getting these genes in... Uh, whatever the gene pool, and once they're out there, um, you know the once you start using the antibiotics again, it's only a matter of time before those genes become more uh, that they are seen more frequently in the gene pool. That sound about right, Concordance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the one thing I might add is that even sort of understanding the differences between a bacterial cell and a human cell, it's still very hard to find compounds which bind only one but not the other. Uh, and so what's going on in, in pharmaceutical companies, I should mention, 
you would think antibiotics would be a very profitable venture, and, and to some extent they are, but they're an acute disease. People don't take lifelong antibiotics. So there's not as much of a commercial motivation to a pharmaceutical company to develop an effective um, broad-scale antibiotic as there is to develop, say, a cholesterol drug, because a lot more people are going to end up taking a lot more cholesterol drug over the life of you know, that, that drug cycle. Um, so it almost is going to have to be subsidized. But even knowing the basic research is not enough. We then also have to commercialize and implement that knowledge into something that can, can treat bacteria. I'm acutely aware that two shows ago we had Greenman on and we were talking about global warming. And uh, we finished the show with me asking him for some optimistic outlook. And he basically said, yeah, the optimism is that we're all doomed and everything's going to get a lot worse than people think. Um, I have a horrible feeling that this is going to be one of the most depressing shows if we don't give some comfort and uh, optimism to the viewers. I mean, it, how, how serious are we looking? Is it something that could be solved if there was the will to do so? Yeah, yeah, of course. It, it'll come down to A, money, and B, policy. Uh, the science is there. You know, the scientists kind of have a pretty good, clear picture of what is needed. It's just that it has to be done on a scale that is currently not possible. And you have to motivate people. There has to be some reason for them to do it. Uh, and it's something that microbiologists talk a lot about, uh, especially epidemiological microbiologists, is how are we going to deal with the rise of MRSA, um, which is the multi-drug resistant or methicillin resistant uh, Staphylococcus aureus problem, where a good 60 to 80 percent of all infections are community-acquired MRSA, uh, which means that you go to the hospital, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get it. Uh, and that means that our mortality rate is really going to go up and hospitals are going to become more of a hindrance or a harm than they are a benefit. Uh, and that will probably lead to a small collapse of the tertiary care type facilities. It, you know, you'll see fewer, fewer and fewer people wanting to go to the hospital because their chances of, of dying there are much, much higher. Particularly for anything surgical. Your message is more frightening than the fact that <laughs> for, for once your dinosaur has slipped. Yeah, it doesn't it want to stay on. You for what you are. Yeah. Well, let, let, let me just say DPR. Um, yeah, one of the reasons we started talking about this is both um, Concordance and I have been on the antibiotics this week. And for me, there was this... Um, so for me, I've not actually had antibiotics since I had my appendix out. And that was uh, probably getting on for a decade ago now. Um, before then, I can't remember the last time I was really sick like I was this time. And there was this really gnarly bit where it was getting worse, worse, worse. You start taking the antibiotics, it got much better. And then it got much worse again. And there comes this sort of point where uh, all, all of a sudden you can be looking at essentially death within a couple of days because you know, the, if, if the antibiotics aren't there, now the infections that we had are unlikely to have gone that way. But um, you are all of a sudden presented with being almost completely, um, almost completely helpless against a bacterial infection. And just the thought of it, um, 
when you actually have a bacterial infection, uh, how shall I say, brings the whole thing into a fairly sharp perspective. It does, and um, uh, I've been in, uh, uh, like yourself, certain stages. Uh, fortunately, only a couple where um, I was very close to death, and had it not been for the wonderful medical service that I received, um, I undoubtedly wouldn't be here now. Um, but is it is it correct, perhaps, to say that um, the problem with antibiotics is the fact that bacteria are evolving? Now, this isn't proof of evolution, of course, because it's still the same kind, isn't it? Bacteria, right, right. bacteria. Well, no, 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 no. It's even worse than that, DPR. They are still bacteria. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. and I opened a can yeah, of peanut butter the other go. day. I opened a can of peanut butter the other day, and a stegosaurus came out. So that was proof of evolution. That was proof of evolution. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. It wasn't proof of evolution because there wasn't a male stegosaurus and a female stegosaurus. Yeah, and it was I blind, thought... too. It had no <laughs> eyes. I'll, on that note, should we uh, invite, uh, I hope he's still with us, Aaron, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. I'm trying to figure out why the video won't work on this. It says it's not available yet. You look much better without the video, Aaron, trust me. Yeah. But um, whilst you're trying to fix it, perhaps you can um, tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing, I think, next weekend and what your speech is about. I think that could be a good uh, segue into a new topic. Well, I don't have anything to do next weekend, but I'm glad you asked anyway because I'm kind of proud of the fact that I have nothing to do next weekend. You fixed me. You're giving a speech in a couple of weekends' time. In a couple of weeks, yeah. I'm giving a speech in Canada. Right. Let's talk about that then and stop being difficult. I <laughs> wanted to talk about the other thing. Oh, what's the other thing? The thing I was supposed to be... What? What's the other thing? You're cutting out. You just talk us about what the other thing is. All right. There was apparently this high school... Uh, out in, in East Texas somewhere that wanted to have me come and do a, a my first formal one-on-one -on -one debate uh, in, with a live audience and everything. And initially, the, the reports that I got was that there was a lot of interest in it. They uh, was going to be a, a class project during school hours, uh, but there was a bunch of uh, parents and teachers, and this is an East Texas town where they teach that dinosaurs never existed, and among other things. Um, and they wanted to have a lot of the community involved, so they made it an after-school event. I was told that there were three different ministers that were vying for who was going to be the one to debate me. And then, apparently, somebody they looked me up. And then the next, the next report I got was that all three ministers had dropped out. They said that they needed a professional apologist. Uh, and so uh, and far as I understand, they got um, some limey English-speaking person to deal with you. <laughs> apparently has a posh voice. I thought, hang on, I, I fit, all, fit all these criteria, didn't he? Ah. Do you remember what city so it was? The, yeah, it was Lufkin. <laughs> yeah, I grew up not too far from Lufkin. <laughs> yeah, Lufkin yeah. is uh, a low IQ city. I was really looking forward to this. I mean, I was absolutely salivating over it. They wanted to do the, the debate on the topic of the source of morality, and I was all for that. And my wife said, no, don't do that, because that's the one they think is their strong point. And, and I was convinced 
having seen the way other atheists debate this point, uh, I was convinced that I was I would be much much better. The three ministers, as I said, dropped out. They just said they needed a professional apologist. They eventually got somebody. It took them a week or two to get them, and then I heard that. Uh, uh, well, eventually, but when they had finally sorted out somebody that that wasn't going to drop out of debating me just because he looked me up online, by that time, they I mean they had the venue set, they had the date set, everything's in place, and then the the school said you know you can no longer use our auditorium and one of these uh, the surrounding churches were one of the neighborhood churches that said if they have any problem or if you need more space you can use our place but then they had removed their offer as well uh, nobody wanted me to debate in Lufkin Texas the report that I got was that that community did not want to see both sides of this discussion at least so far as I can tell if I was involved I, I want um, Concordance to explain. I think it's the most wonderful expression I've heard in a while. A low IQ city. Um, explain yourself. Why is what was it, uh, Lufkin a low IQ city? It's that whole area. So I, I grew up uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Longview, Texas, which is it's sort of the greater metro area that Lufkin's a part of. Uh, that whole part of East Texas is really low-density communities, small farming communities, uh, and logging. And, you know, it's a very blue-collar area, and very Baptist, very fundamentalist Baptist-dominated. Um, you know, I went to a Methodist church, and they called me the atheist kid because I wasn't a Baptist. Uh, and we had all the great Baptist jokes, you know, uh, why do you take two Baptists with you when you go fishing? So that if you only take one, they'll drink all your beer. Uh, <laughs> why don't Baptists have sex? It's too close to dancing. Uh, anyway, Lufkin is one of these really small little farming towns that's overgrown itself, but it's not really one town. It's a bunch of little, like, um, oh, mobile homes and farmhouses all sort of gathered together to put together a school system. But it's small enough that it's like they have two schools. They have the lower school and upper school. And so for like first through sixth grade, you go to the lower school. And then from seventh to, to you know, senior uh, year, 12th grade, you, uh, you go to the upper school. But um, it's just, you know, it's a farming mentality. And they're, they're so far away. They're so isolated. We call it the piney curtain because the pine trees block your view of the rest of the world. Uh, you know, even blocks like radio signals. We didn't get good reception. Uh, Dallas is not that far away, which is a, it's a very metro-type city. Uh, but that was all, you know, three and a half hours away by car. And so it's a very provincial, very isolated community of small farming communities. They just, there's no, there's no sense of anything outside of that isolated little, little area. I have to say that of all the times I've had conversations with you and listened to you speaking and watching your videos, I have never known you to be so bigoted. <laughs> I, I, I want to put out a, an invitation to anyone from Lufkin who may be watching now, or indeed anyone at all who may be watching. I don't think they've gotten the internet yet. I don't know how they, they'd have to. <laughs> no, that's just cheap. <laughs> no, I think they'd have to, you know. Before we move on, anyone that would like to join us, and I, I see that I haven't already getting you um, in touch with us, anyone that would like to join us to defend Lufkin or to discuss any of the topics that we uh, are 
mulling over at the moment or indeed anything uh, that you would like to raise yourself, send a Skype contact request to Magic Sandwich Show, all one word, and uh, include in that, please, if you could, the gist or topical question that you'd like to ask. If you simply send a request without that information, it will be ignored. Uh, and as I say, I, I looks as if I've got quite a few contact requests, so we'll get on to the callers shortly. But I, I sense by the body language, Thunderful has something to say. Um, you do? That's that's how bad I am. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Aaron. All right. Well, I, I'm done with that. I mean, as you said, the week after that, I mean, this was going to be on the 10th was my debate. The week after that, I'm going to be giving the speech at Imagine No Religion 3 in Canloops, Canada, and I'm looking forward to that. And uh, that's about all I can immediately foresee in my itinerary. Yuri, are you with us? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, hi. Hi, thanks for taking me on. Uh, my first question is a bit sort of uh, rooted in politics as well as atheism, but it is essentially, will atheism ever be as big as religion is currently? Can I go first on this before I invite the panel? Actually, yeah. let, let, let me put it in certain places in the world it already is. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, the reason why I say it's linked into politics is because just look at the past, what is it, nearly 100 years of communism. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean atheism has to use communism as it's a uh, cart or way of becoming popular, if you see my meaning. Can it be? I, I, I'm telling it you, is, wait, actually, wait, hold on, there's a huge difference between communism, which is a political idea, and atheism, which is simply a um, lack of belief in a god or gods. I do not think that you can in any way equate atheism with a political No, I'm not um, trying to right, they're, they're not even related. That, um, they're not even it related. Was, it was part of atheism plus. No, don't yeah. swear, Thunder. <laughs> yeah, there, there's... Carry on, Yuri. Yeah, sorry. Uh, maybe I'm not defining myself very well. It's just a bit late. Um, but I'm just saying it was a big part of it. And I certainly know I wouldn't be here sitting right now because my parents grew up in the USSR. I'm sure that's the reason why they were atheists. Sorry, I just, just for clarification, you said... It was a big part of it. I'm not understanding what you're saying. What I'm, I'm saying that atheism was a big part of uh, the communist ideology. Right. As in, there, was, there wasn't any place for religion. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm equating atheists now to communists. That's okay. totally what I'm trying to do. Okay. I'm just saying it was an element of that. In the same way you could say uh, Christianity is part of uh, C of E, but it won't be the same in Catholicism or whatever. I'm probably not making myself very clear, but essentially it was a big part of it. Um, would someone like to comment on that? Was atheism... I don't even understand what's... I don't understand what's being said. I mean, first of all, atheism really is not a an ideology. What uh, I mean, because atheism includes... There are some religious beliefs that are atheistic. There are a, a range of political perspectives and philosophies that are atheistic. So there's there's no ideology here. What we're talking, all you're talking about with, with atheism is a lack of a belief in God. So is it to say that atheism will ever be bigger than religion? I'm thinking you mean will there ever be a time 
when more people don't believe in gods than do? I should think so, yes. Yeah, that's essentially what I meant uh, to, to get to the point, yeah. And do you think that's something we can get in the near future? Say, even 100 years from now? Well, yes, I think within 100 years, yeah, I think there would be more people not believing in gods than do. Okay, fair enough. Uh, anyone else got any comments on that? I don't really have anything to say on that. <laughs> I've probably asked not the best question. Um, but as well, another question I posted in my contract request was, do you think um, this will come about through um, secularism, as in secular movements we have now? I think that the uh, it that as people people will walk away from the religion for a number of reasons. For me, science is important, but a lot of people walk away from religion not for that reason. They, for you know, science is not as important as I would think it should be for a lot of people. Most of the people statistically who give up their faith do so because of the claims of religion driving them out. Generally, it is, it is the hypocrisy or the implausibility of religious claims. Uh, very often, it's the dishonesty of, of religious assertions that drive people out. I don't know. I, I, you know what? I think that you'll see an end to belief in God about as quickly as you'll see an end to political conservatism or, I don't know, um, anything like that. Not, not because they're linked, just, just the same kinds of things there are people who are afraid of change, who value traditional belief systems, traditional ways of doing things. Um, and there always seems to be a, a spectrum of, of those kinds of opinions. And you may sway people, and the sinner may move. You know what I mean? The, what, what is conservative can be redefined a little bit. You know, we've, we've been honoring gay marriage for 20 years, you know, 20 years from now, they may say, well, that's, that's become an American value. Uh, and we value that. And, and it's, you know, the tea party is all about gay marriage. I, I, I think the center moves, but the spectrum remains that there will always be people who you and I will view as backwards or slow to adopt the change. I think that's going to be the same thing with, people who accept a lack of belief as the norm, yeah, I think and that's, also, a, that's a big gap. Yeah, um, if I remember rightly, um, with a lot of the communist countries, forcing the religion underground didn't actually have that great of an impact. You know, people were just religious, it's just they weren't organized religious, um, which... Um, if I remember rightly, after the fall of communism, Poland became a very Christian country, like hugely Christian. I forget what the percentages are, but um, and it was adopted far quicker than you know. It's basically as soon as communism went, the church, yeah, they they all said they were Christian again. Um, I'll just see if I can find that. Uh, someone else yeah, take it as well. Wasn't it true that Stalin reinstated some of these churches? Uh, religion, uh, Stalin basically, uh, yeah, there had been the drive for atheism prior to the beginning of World War II. 
Um, but then after World War II, religion came back with a vengeance, um, and Stalin dropped the campaign for atheism for obvious reasons. There were bigger things, you know, people wanted to... If it was going to make them fight in the Great Patriotic War, so what? You know, okay, you're Christians. Now, go kill your Nazi, you know? Actually, let, let, let me just bring in this... Uh, I've now got the statistics. Poland is 95% um, believe in... Um, in... A religion of one sort, 91% Catholic, um, and then, bizarrely enough, if you actually got a map of Europe up, uh, what are the two? It's the one to the south is the Czech Republic is one of the least um, least religious countries in the world, and that one's Sweden, by the looks of things, also looks like it's down in the 20s to 30s percent believe in religion. So, I mean, these are, um, even Germany looks like it's only about 50%. So, I mean, even within uh, Europe, you get some of these, oh, oh my word, Chrissy, uh, Romania. Romania is almost black. So, where else Romania? Let me answer the second half of the question. Which was, 98% for Romania wow. believe in something. Sorry. Let me answer the second half of the question, which was, how do we get there? What, what will be the path? I certainly hope it is critical thinking and skepticism that leads us there, that you're talking about uh, you know, getting the entire population of Earth to think skeptically and critically about what they believe. And I think maybe that's the impossibility factor. I, I don't think that will ever happen. And so you'll have sort of non-rational, non-skeptical, non-critical atheists who just like don't believe anything because you know no one else does for social reasons or economic or political reasons. They're non-believers, and I think that's kind of what happened in a lot of these communist countries. Is you know it wasn't like these people arrived at this conclusion through deep thought and consideration and and skeptical thought. It was a matter of do it or die, or this is the party and you must you know adhere to the party. I I don't feel any better about that than I do about Catholicism. You know what's the point? People are atheists because there's no other choice. I I don't feel good about that. Um, so I would certainly hope that you know it's not secularism that is at the you know barrel of a gun. I hope it's something that people choose to do. I would rather have 15% of the population arrive at it at the right reasons than have 95% arrive at the wrong reasons. Um, uh, just reading on from Thunder's point about sort of uh, religion, religion in post-communist countries, what I find hilarious and interesting at the same time is now that the Russian Communist Party is in fact not it has an official religion as Russian Orthodox. So I think this just shows that, um, I think what Collins was just saying, most people weren't sort of atheist uh, or skeptical, skeptical thinking and picking up a Bible and pointing out its flaws of the Quran or whatever. They just adhered to party line. And there's always these people, whatever country you get, will just maybe be sycophantic to power, whatever, and swallow whatever it is, whether it's religion or um, 
uh, an atheist line. So yeah, I think most for most of the time, if you looked at statistics in the 70s or whatever, then I think most of these atheists and so on weren't, um, didn't uh, lose their religion or have an absence out of it of critical thought. It was the opposite, in fact. So in that way, atheism became a bit like a religion. When you silence the panel, which doesn't happen often, does anyone want to pick up on that point, Darren? I'm trying to figure out how a, a, a lack of belief in God, a lack of conviction becomes a religion. Well, I'm not saying it became a religion. That's probably, that's a not very good way to put it. It became more like a, not like an... No, I, I think I know, I know what you mean. It's that people weren't actually arriving at this uh, some sort of logical conclusion. It was yeah. basically what they were instructed to not believe in. Yeah, I mean, it's, you were instructed. Um, you know, the dogma, if you like, was not belief in God. Um, and most people, the problem that they have with religion is typically the dogma. Um, and in that sense, you, know, you could argue that in Stalinist um, Russia, uh, you know, this, this was religion by dogma. Uh, so, sorry, this was atheism by dogma. Yeah, um, I'd agree with that, and that's probably what's contributed to such a large shift, the pendulum shifting the other way in post-communist countries when you look at how religious places like Russia are now. Um, but then again, that might go the other way because I've heard some things on the great vines and relatives um, that people like Richard Dawkins and in general this type of conversation about religion is getting more and more popular um, and people are becoming skeptical again and arriving at atheism through a logical conclusion, not just an illogical do-what-you're-told fashion. So it's uh, the pendulum's moving, let's just say. I, I worry about this quite a bit in what has been a recent discussion, and in fact, R and I were talking about this before the call started, the, the line between what I'm going to call political atheism and skepticism you know, people who are part of a, a bundle of beliefs or positions, not beliefs, about, you know, equality and uh, social issues. And, and I'm not saying atheism. Plus, I'm just saying people in general who arrive at their atheism as sort of a reaction or a, an opposition to religious oppression. And they, they, they deal with the social issues involved. And that sort of leads them down that path of opposing religion for all the harms that it does. I, I never felt that. I never, I never have felt particularly strongly about that. I, I agree. I, I want to fight some of those battles, but that's not what led me to where I am today. It was strictly a matter of my skeptical views, my rational, critical thinking, and I'm much, much more proud of that process than I am of the particular conclusions I arrived at. And again, I, I, I have, I think, less in common with a political atheist, someone who is much more about the social issues involved than I am with someone who you know, is more about the science and the critical thinking and the, the process question. How do you arrive at what you believe or don't believe? Essentially, the way I got to my atheism now 
you would think it was through my parents because they were both atheists and they were both raised in the USSR. Um, but I don't know whether you could call them sceptical or political atheists, but I, I don't want to uh, intrude too much on their stories here. Um, but I'll just say that I was um, never raised an atheist. Um, my childhood, I went to, I think, maybe two, three private schools. And then I went to a state C of E school. Um, and to be honest, C of E is quite a soft version of Christianity. And maybe it's uh, English bias, but I'd say the nicest version, if there is such a possible thing. Um, and I remember there was one time when my friend came over and she advocated sort of, we, okay, we were eight, but she was advocating a creationist view of the world. And I kept saying, we came from monkeys or whatever. And the good thing is that my parents never supported me or supported her and sort of just let me come to the logical conclusion of my current atheism. So I think what you should let people do is, uh, as some of the people on the panel have said, not um, uh, point it down the barrel of a gun, like sometimes in Soviet Russia, um, but neither let religion swagger around and uh, trample upon people's rights and infringe them, essentially. So that's what I'm saying. Just uh, I think it is clear in time um, that you can logically arrive atheism. Church of England, you're right, it's so vanilla that belief in God in the Church of England is almost an optional extra. You know, it's something like you might change, like, you know, adding the curtains to your house or something. It's, um, it, it's, it's nice to have the God in the religion, but it's not, you know, really necessary. It's I mean, it, it, that's how watered down the Church of England is. Yeah, I mean, I've often described the Church of England, it's more of a, a social club where God is the colour of the wallpaper. Gary, it's always a pleasure. You can trust me entirely. Can you hear me okay? We can hear you very well. I'm always somewhat frightened by what you're going to uh, discuss. Cause you're well, I'm going to be mostly... With us, and then I think you look very good. After you've been on the show, you always go off and make a video about us and saying how terribly we were, we you were treated on the show. So, what have you got for us today, Gary? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's the game of argument, right? Um, you know, it's always from everybody's perspective. But yeah, this you know, it's kind of a serious issue. Um, uh, a, a YouTuber, a YouTube atheist, he was also an anti-natalist, but a British citizen was arrested in Indonesia in February for two marijuana joints and a little bit of dust, okay, less than a gram of dust of marijuana. He's been in jail for almost 90 days now. <clears throat> with no, no, we have no contact with him. We're trying through the embassy, all the rest of this stuff. But he's facing four to 12 years in Indonesian prison for possession of two marijuana joints. I think it's discriminatory prosecution. I think it's discrimi discriminatory enforcement of the law. I've never heard of somebody for facing Indonesian prison for possession of the, for possession of marijuana. Okay, trafficking, yes. Possession, 
I don't know of any cases of British or American citizens being incarcerated in some of the worst prisons in the world. Well, uh, well I'm just saying I think it might be a new trend. I'm just saying that my traditional understanding was that there was traffickers that faced this horror, okay, and that it wasn't necessarily just possessors. And so I'm just saying that these, these laws are incredibly draconian, and and you know I'm I'm. I'm and other people are trying to fight a battle to stop this. And so I'm trying, I'm going more aggressive. There's some people who want to just, you know, try to do everything they can to get this individual person out. I want to get this individual out. But what I really want to do is say, no, we can't negotiate with these terrorists. This is a kind of terrorism, in my opinion. His life is ruined. The lives of all the people who care about him are totally disrupted. We're going to be financially and and emotionally destroyed for the future, realizing that a friend of ours is sitting in this hellhole. Um, I don't think we should have diplomatic relations with countries that do this to for people for crimes that aren't even crimes. This isn't a crime against a human being. I'm just curious. Do you know what? Do you know what he was doing in Indonesia? Yeah, he works. He works in. He's he's a, he's an English teacher, and he works abroad. So he's worked in Saudi Arabia. He's worked in all these other countries before, and he's apparently navigated these countries successfully. And maybe he was feeling a little arrogant, a little bit confident, and he didn't realize that he you know was going to get himself I mean, in big trouble. Yeah, if if I remember rightly, all of the countries in that neck of the woods are very severe. Um, punishments for uh, drug-related offences. In fact, if I remember right, someone was telling me one of these, I, th I think it was Thailand, I mean Indonesia is one of these, and when you're coming into land, uh, you know, there's the polite little announcement of, you know, we hope you've enjoyed the flight, the luggage will be picked up at uh, carousel number three, and there is a mandatory death sentence for uh, drug trafficking in this country. Yeah, I mean, so it, it really is, um, I don't know why, but it, it's way, way up there in it, it terms is, of what they regard as... If I may, this is what I wanted to move on to with, with Gary, if I may, Gary. I mean, obviously, I, I suspect you're someone that doesn't believe that marijuana should be, or possession should be a criminal offence. But just in more general terms, do you think that a country has a right to impose whatever laws it sees fit in that particular country, whether you agree with them or not. No, I mean, I don't think you'd have a law that says it's okay to beat women or something. I think it would be rational for a civilized country to say we're not going to have relations with a country that says eats its children or does, you know, imprisons children for, you know, stealing candy and cuts their arms off or something. I mean, there's video in some of these countries of, you know, Iranians or something like running over a child's arm because it got caught shoplifting. <coughs> We shouldn't have diplomatic relations with uncivilized countries. We shouldn't do business with them. We shouldn't agree to shake their hand and have supper with them. We just shouldn't be exposed to this at all. This is like entrapment, right? I mean, we're all, we could all be guilty of making foolish mistakes, right? We all get drunk. We all do stupid shit. All right? So I, this I, could I, be I don't think you can say it's entrapment. I mean, if he, it's not entrapment if he actually was in possession of it. And it well, what I'm saying is it's entrapment in the sense that obviously the marijuana joints didn't cost $5 million. So obviously there's plenty of drugs in Indonesia. So people do use it socially, okay? It is a, an accessible drug in Indonesia. So what I'm saying is, is if you have a law, like say I, I make a jaywalking law, and I only kill one in a million jaywalkers, but I have a death sentence for jaywalking, 
obviously everybody's going to be sucked in by, oh, they never enforced the law. It's okay to jaywalk. I'm going to be lucky. Everybody's going to think they're lucky. When, they, when everybody speeds, you know speeding is wrong. You know it's jeopardizing your life, but you still do it because you think I'm going to get away with it. It's human just nature. Out of, just out of interest, uh, would you draw the line with just marijuana or would you include other drugs like LSD and cocaine in there? Um, for, for possession, I would draw the line for possession of all these drugs that American citizens, civilized human beings, do not go to dungeons for possession or use of these drugs. So trafficking is another issue because you are exploiting uh, people. You, would, would, would you um, not want uh, relations with the political relations with a country that, say, has um, criminalized the... Uh, Ownership of cocaine? Criminalize the possession of cocaine? Yeah. Or trafficking? Again, I'm, I'm for, they, I'm saying that you can hold a foreign national when they've done a real crime against your country. What I'm saying is somebody smoking two joints in their house, okay, is not a crime sufficient for you to persecute a civilized human being from a civilized country. You have to give them back to the country, okay, and let that country deal with that. Because that's not a legit, it's not enough of a crime. Uh, no, I mean, that, on that, I, I on that point, to, on that point I certainly no disagree with you. If you commit a crime in a country, it becomes, uh, that is the society, if you like, that you've transgressed. I don't think that you then hand people back to another country. Uh, to have their punishment. Well, I think for vice crime, I think that is totally appropriate. I don't think vice crime should be international, um, and especially when it's religiously based. I mean, this is a this is an Islamic, um, not dictatorship, but an Islamic democracy. They've chosen to be this way, and they're applying religious law to people. And I'm saying, and I'm going to make the argument, look, they don't have 4 million people in jail. Obviously, they don't enforce this law very often, or they'd have more people in jail than we do. They have a population of 250 million people, okay? And they don't have anywhere near the number of people we have in jail. So what I'm saying is there's all kinds of opportunity for this law to be abused, for them to persecute people with this law by their choice. And what I'm saying is the fact that this guy is a, an outspoken atheist, the fact that he was an outspoken anti-religious, anti-natalist, might have something to do, and the fact that he doesn't work for Nike, he doesn't work for a big corporation, so he's not going to be protected by Nike, uh, this, is a, this might have everything to do with why this individual was chosen for this prosecution. It, it may do, but I don't think we can say for certain that it did. But just, again, going back to a more general point, um, one of the things that you referred to was the conditions in which he was being incarcerated. Um, I presume that you accept there are um, occasions when people should be incarcerated. Is it, is it um, and I know that it's not quite on topic, but well, you're happy with incarceration provided they're treated with dignity? Or not? Well, well, I think that's a first case rule. That's one. That's the reason right there not to have diplomatic relations with a country, right? The, the, these prisoners in this country are treated worse than the worst war, war, war prisoner of war camps. Uh, okay. Bay. I mean, yeah, yes. Uh, actually, they're I would they go are not given. They're not given clean water. They're not given uh, utensils to eat with. They're, they're they have to eat with their hands. They're in cells with up to 20 should, should any country Should any country have diplomatic relations, relations with the United States when it, um, it still has Guantanamo Bay open where it and tortures? Not only, 
I'm not going to defend wrong with wrong, okay? The fact the United States government has been an asshole and, and bailed out of the Geneva Conventions and played this game of creating non-citizens, I think, is equally wrong. I think we should be bombed for it or droned for it, all right? Whatever penalty you want to impose on us for it, I think it's absolutely wrong. And I think a country who's civilized should say, we won't have diplomatic relations with you if you're going to treat people like that. But I'll also make the argument to you that I'm quite confident that everybody we have in prison is treated well, and in most cases, they belong there. Okay, this guy is in a dungeon, the worst prisons in the world, for two marijuana joints. I'm saying that's not acceptable. There's no least, way you can deprive this person to a half of a criminal. Uh, Gary, at least he was charged and convicted by a court process. He hasn't been, been held yet. over 11 he years without charge. I'm going to go to concordance next, though, Gary, and then we'll come back to you. Concordance. So, Gary, just, I mean, strictly pragmatic, if, if you really do want to affect a change, and I think this is something you could absolutely do here, but it's not going to be on the international level, is I think your friend, looking back, would almost certainly not have ever gone to Indonesia knowing that this is the kind of treatment that they, they give to people, Maybe it is a matter of spreading the word to people who are English tutors. I mean, raise awareness, absolutely, and have it be a voluntary thing. Look, we're not coming to Indonesia. You know, we're not going to teach your people English, and that's going to put you at a disadvantage in the world. That, I mean, that's how change happens. I, I don't see any reason why. We can't, well, I, I as a world community, have, pressure people. I think you have to apply a whip or a carrot to change behavior, and Indonesia will not change its behavior unless we reward them for changing it or we punish them for not changing it. Well, so that's exactly, saying what that's I, exactly what Concordance is saying here, is apply a financial pressure by actually suggesting that people don't go to Indonesia. But yelling uh, at that's the like State Department. That's people don't go to Walmart. Okay, it's a cheap vacation destination. They think they're going to be safe. Uh, that's what I'm saying, that this is sort of entrapment. This is sort of a circumstance where you lull people into a certain sense of they're in control and they're not in control. And in any minute, they're going to be completely out of control and they're going to be as bewildered as anybody saying, why did I not realize this? Everybody told me these people were crazy and now I find out they really are. I, I think you can understand this, though, Gary. Just Again, strictly pragmatically, you will be tilting at windmills if you try to go the State Department route. I think directly going to people who are planning on taking jobs in Indonesia, it would not be hard to find these people. Well, I'm, I'm sure that all of them personally, know. No, I don't understand it, okay? I don't understand doing nothing. So me personally, I'm not voting for any candidate ever again who doesn't want to take this civilization thing seriously and say, yes, we're going to use our power. We're the biggest guy on the block. We can reform these countries. We don't have we to can accept impose our will. the way they are. We don't have to accept being judged by religious lunatics. Right. Okay? And I don't think we should be doing business with them. I don't think we should reward them for this insidious and insane behavior. Okay. Didn't you just say that America deserved to be bombed with drone strikes to improve it or something? Yes, I just did. That's right. Exactly. We should be taught a lesson. We should have learned from 9-11 that violence doesn't work, that we should find better solutions. Then why are you advocating that America should be revenge war. We went on a revenge war. 
Yeah, well, I'm saying that the only way you're going to re- – you can't change behavior without a carrot or a stick. I'm not going to say that 7,000 times. I'm just going to say that's the logic here. You either reward Indonesia for being uh, more civilized or you punish them for being uncivilized. But if you do nothing, nothing changes, and I think that is uh, disgusting. I think just thinking about this man in this horrible prison – like I said, if you knew this, this individual, Derived Energy was his YouTube screen name. He's, he's a, the most decent of decent human beings, and he's in the worst, absolute worst place you can be in and being probably treated horribly, and I find that unacceptable. If, yeah, what I'm right. saying is people can control their own behavior, and one of those things is that they cannot go to Indonesia. If you right. inform so them of what the law mistake. is, you, so you take people, people and you give mistake. power. You know what, Gary? You're not going to be happy unless you are in a position where you can be angry and wrong. And it's like the only thing that makes you happy in the world. I'm talking about a real yeah. solution to the problem here. Right. You know, so go to these Indonesian foreigners recruiting. Give, give the world to Islam. You're just saying to me, no, no, Islam. no, let's. Let's Give make sure they, they're moral. Let's, let's endorse their laws and endorse their behavior and say it's all okay, and we as the most powerful, most civilized nation on earth, or at least pretending we'll to be, we'll tell them what to do. We'll say it's okay. We'll tell them what to do, what laws they have that we, we allow. You're talking about the difference between them telling them what to do we will encourage and controlling our own actions. They're burning witches. They're not doing anything other than burning witches, and I think we should tell them burning witches is stupid. Okay? Mohammed would not want you. What would Mohammed say? Mohammed wouldn't say, torture him, torture him, torture him. Mohammed wouldn't say that. Gary, we've gone a little bit off topic. Actually, let, let, can, can, can I just... Uh, witches. Let's, let's uh, keep... Let, 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 me, let me just put a point in here. It would maybe make more sense if you cleaned your own backyard before worrying about other people's. <laughs> that is, it would make more sense if you actually worry about the plank in your own eye before the splinter in your neighbor's. Um, and in many ways, the supermax prisons are probably uh, one of the most insidious punishments that uh, there is around where for 23 hours a day you're basically locked in some uh, concrete uh, shoebox. I mean, does this not actually strike you as a problem closer to home that you would have a better chance of addressing than trying to address address the problems in somebody else's? There's not too many decent men in an American prison. I'll make that argument in the defense of the American prison system is there aren't too many decent human beings in our prisons. You usually go to prison when you've done crime more than once and you've done a crime that basically does brutalize some human. You've, you've, you've gun ward for your drug lording, for your other bullshit abuses of some civilian's rights. I'm saying that a guy smoking a two joints in his fucking own house in another country shouldn't be in a dungeon. Yes, but my, my point, going back to where I started from, and this is why I did raise this point, um, I asked you whether you thought it was um, appropriate or um, acceptable for a country, a state, to uh, make its own laws, whether you disagree with them or agree with them or not. And I thought you agreed with that. Now, 
when it comes to treatment. No, I didn't agree with that. I said uh, I don't think they should be able to kill their kids or beat their wives, and I don't think they should be able to put people in dungeons for smoking marijuana. I don't you, think you, you should be allowed to do that. And this is why, again, I asked you the next question, which I did, which is whether you think that uh, incarceration is acceptable if the conditions in which they are held uh, are not draconian. Now, well, not for this think, crime. If, if, not for this crime. No, I'm not uh, for. I'm not for the drug war period, and I'm certainly not for it based on some sort of religious notion that Mohammed says so. Okay, then I'm really against well, it. Mohammed that's saying so. It's the laws of that. It is. It is in Indonesia. It is in Indonesia. No, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid they, they consider it offense against God. Okay, that's what they consider it. Yes. All right, Gary. I know that you'll make a video saying that you were treated incredibly badly. I'll give you the final word. Oh, I'm treated fine. I just think all of your opinions were disgusting. I think you're disgusting human beings, okay? I think you're debaucherous, disgusting bastards for justifying and defending a man being in goddamn dungeon prison for smoking a joint. the man who sat happily by for the last 10 years human beings. Okay, you don't need to make a video, Gary. You've done it on air. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll move on. Um, and the next person that's going to join us is, uh, I hope, uh, Michael. And whilst I'm bringing in, can I just again give thanks to uh, Live Life 8072 who stepped in at the last minute to take up uh, Tony's position and uh, stream this. I know that we said we would do it on Ustream and Raw TV. Unfortunately, uh, we weren't able to do that, but thank you very much, Joe, for stepping in and at least getting us up on uh, Vaughn TV, which um, seems to be working quite well. Um, would always welcome your feedback. If you think the Vaughn is better than Ustream, um, send us a message either in the uh, comments um, or through our website. It's the best way to get in touch with us. I keep on saying this, www.magicsandwichshow.com. And also, um, news about future uh, shows is always posted on the announcements page and I know I'm not very good at these things but there's an RSS link on that page and if you click on that then you'll get a notification when we post an announcement about future shows so that's the best way to do it. Um, Michael, are you with us? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Hi, what have you got for us? Um, yeah, um, have you ever seen uh, Richard Dawkins' documentary The Root of All Evil? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'd just like to talk about um, Catholic faith schools in the UK and uh, my experiences in them since I've just left one. Yes, tell us. Um, right, well, uh, Richard Dawkins, I felt, was making it out that um, Catholic faith schools are like this brainwashing environment, and he certainly are in the primary school. But um, I do think he rather misrepresented them in secondary, because I am an atheist, um, and I was able to be open about it in Catholic secondary school, and... Um, the RE lessons, they weren't more, they were less about um, brainwashing the kids, they were more about open discussion of all the issues, and um, a lot of times, I had a teacher called Mr. Hampton, and I'd often get into theological arguments, and nobody had a problem with it, so, that's, what, that's the first point I'd like to make. Okay. Uh, what do you have to respond about that? So that was the first point, you had another one. Oh, yeah, the uh, second point is, um, I was really rather wondering about, um, I I'm rather confused about the American gun culture. Um, as somebody who lives in Britain, I'm really not, I'm really, really rather confused about it because um, there really isn't one over here. Um, nobody really cares about guns, nobody really wants a gun. Uh, 
Um, and yeah, well, we two people from Texas with us, and we've also got Thunderfoot, who we're with myself, uh, had a debate with uh, Owen and David Smalley about this um, some months ago now um, on uh, dogma, dogma debates. I'll include a link to it if you want to uh, hear that uh, podcast. It, um, it's interesting times, but uh, Thunder, bizarrely and yeah. Owen, who's been very quiet. Thunder first. Bizarrely enough. Um, the tightening up of the gun laws in England didn't lead to more... Uh, it wasn't the prelude to dictatorship. And one of the things is always painted as in America is the government wants to take away your guns and then they can control you because they'll have all the guns. Um, and strangely, that didn't happen in England or anywhere else in Europe. Aaron, over to you. All right. Once again, uh, my position on guns is only that I don't, I don't support uh, the idea of, of creating further laws for further restrictions. And I realize that a lot of the people that have guns have them for indefensible reasons, as far as my own opinion goes. But that's immaterial. It's, it doesn't matter to me what their opinion is about why they want to have guns. If I want to have a gun because I want to go out and buy a particular collector's item, I should be able to go out and do so. Uh, part of the arrogance of being an American is that I ought to be able to buy most of the things I want and that there's a responsible way to own some things. And a handgun or a rifle or something like that, you can own them responsibly. It's not like nuclear weapons or ricin or any of that sort of nonsense. So I don't understand why there has to be restrictions against owning guns. The debate that I had with Thunder, well, actually not with Thunder, but more with DPR, was that DPR kept asserting that we should find some way of ridding America of guns. And that was the position I was arguing against. Actually, uh, yeah, um, just to briefly retouch on our, um, the debate that we had for those who weren't actually there, um, you say that you can't responsibly own ricin. Well, this is just not true. I mean, the thing about many of these guns is they're limited in their purpose. Yeah, and, and arguably their prime use is for killing lots of people. Um, and there are limited reasons why um, either that there are costs of having things like that in society and, and benefits. One of the benefits is you have the extra freedom. One of the costs, of course, is that people can get a, their hands on these sorts of things. Now, you know, you, you say that as a responsible American, you should have you know, the right to these things. But for some reason, ricin, which I would argue is, yeah, you can own ricin responsibly. Um, but why shouldn't you be able to do that as an American? I'm not going to make an argument for ricin. I know that uh, for every reason that you would conceivably want to have a gun now you most of them are going to involve something having to do with the craftsmanship of the item and the way that it's manufactured and uh, collectability and a number of other reasons that Bryson simply doesn't qualify for uh, doesn't my, qualify for you Aaron but you might yeah I mean uh, this is the thing you're not a so do, do we have you, to make a straw man argument or do we make it's not possible to address the one that I'm actually talking about we have to put it into some ridiculous hyperbole I mean is really that it is that what is required in this case because I, I mean we can always we can always replace 
you know, if, if somebody wants food, we can replace it with cigarettes. You know, we, we change the meaning of everything if we, you know, but I wanted to stay on topic for the sake of the guy's question. No, no, no. This is, the, this is the thing, though. Uh, well, what is your problem with people owning um, nerve agents? I don't have a problem with people owning nerve agents if they use the same restrictions that I am that I in, uh, supported for the ownership of guns. Right. Then, then why um, is why am I not allowed to? I mean, I, your position is now consistent. Why um, do most Americans not have this same consistency with um, owning things that are limited in their use? And uh, someone's typing. Yeah, uh, Michael, we will come to you in a second. If you could just mute yourself if you're typing, because we do get the keyboard coming through in uh, like a, a drum machine. Do carry on, Thunder, and then we'll come back to you, Michael. Now, um, what, what Aaron has now put forward is a coherent and um, consistent position, um, which is, you know, it's more towards the libertarian. I don't have any problem with it. Um, but the thing is that most Americans will argue that you shouldn't be allowed to have things like nerve agents. Once again, if you have if you have a control situation wherein, for example, if I'm going to apply to have uh, weapons and I need to have for any given weapon, there's going to be a judgment of what's required that I demonstrate to show that I can own whatever that is responsibly. There are going to be different criteria for different types of weapons and for nerve agents and that sort of thing. You're going to have to show different facilities, possibly even motivations in some cases, other justifications that you're going to have to show. I wanted to have simply a change in the way that we uh, rate someone's mental aptitude or capacity when they're owning certain weapons. Like, if you're going to go buy a deer hunting rifle, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of criteria on what you're on what you're trying to get. If you want a submachine gun, well, then we're going to be more interested in your mental aptitude. That's, I think, reasonable. We don't have a way of estimating people's mental aptitude. That's why Alex Jones lives in a house of 50 some odd firearms, and he's completely batshit crazy. Most other places probably wouldn't well, allow that. Now, if he were to, if that same person were to come up and ask for ricin, I think he'd get an extra raised eyebrow out of it, and I think there should be some more tests involved. But and I, 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 let, let, let me just but, throw in a little thing about uh, uh, Alex Jones for all of his fifty guns um, is still uh, no closer than one laser guided bomb from being able to defeat the government. <laughs> Michael's keen to uh, come back. Michael. Um, yeah, um, what well, I was wondering, uh, right, can you hear me all right? Yeah, I'm sorry oh, okay. that, that Thunder won't let me explain the, the American situation because he wants to hyperbolize it into something else that's unrelated, like nerve agents, but, and there, thus, for, thus, you will never no, get it. No, um, this, is, this is not a point. I'm going to insist you pause because Mike okay. is being desperate to make a point. Uh, okay. Which okay. is on topic. So let, let's stick with the callers, please. Mike. Uh, what I'm confused by with guns is. Um, when people say uh, guns kill people, people kill people. What I'm confused by is, why do we need um, automatic weapons? Um, surely, 
Uh, I'm no expert on this, I'm not claiming to be, but surely it would work if perhaps people were limited to burst weapons, the kind of weapons where they're not able to shoot up a room before somebody can tackle them, perhaps get the gun off them. And, Do you know uh, what an automatic weapon is? Uh, you hold down the trigger and it fires the entire clip. Uh, that's no. Even. Because the only way I can address this is from an anecdotal perspective. And I, and I know people criticize me for that, but they asked me the position of an American regarding guns. The anecdote of my, per, my opinion is all I can give in the context of the question. There are only a handful of guns I've ever wanted or considered buying, and all of them are, I think, amusing only in their overkill capacity. I mean, like, like a, a friend of mine bought a snub-nosed Derringer that shoots 12-gauge, and a slug for the 12-gauge is the size of the barrel. I find that too funny. Obviously, novelty is one reason that I would want to own this gun, just for the sheer larfs of it. Uh, there's a couple of others that I would like to have that I think are are probably only good for a zombie apocalypse. Do I ever intend to use them for anything? No. Am I seriously going to buy them? Probably not, going because I don't have enough expendable cash to justify such such purchases. But there are... Some shotguns that uh, that shoot up to 14 rounds, and you can just squeeze off the trigger as fast as you like. Semi-auto, I can clear a room. I mean, uh, there's another one that, that has 99 shots of 9mm rounds. And I, this, this is another one that I, I find amusing that I would like to own. And I don't like the idea that the government would tell me that I'm not allowed to own them regardless of my capacity, regardless of my sanity, regardless of my adherence to what are already very strict laws in this state with regard to gun ownership. It's so restricted that owning a gun in Texas for the purposes of self-defense is pointless because you can't get to the gun in a self-defense situation unless you have a conceal and carry license. It's the only way around it. So the guns that I would want to have would effectively be locked in safes on my property. Now, from a British perspective, uh, from what I understand, you have a gun locked in somebody else's facility, like the city keeps it for you and you get to ask permission. No, not, hold not entirely. Some, okay. some firearms you do, um, may, namely uh, mainly revolvers and that sort of thing. Shotguns you can own, um, but if you store them at your own home, you have to store uh, the ammunition in a separate uh, lockable cabinet from the gun and also, I think, also the, um, the stock as well. Um, but I have a confession to make, Aaron. Interesting. Uh, I actually own a shotgun. It's actually kept in a secure cabinet about 300 miles away, and I haven't used it for over 20 years. But, yeah, I, I do own a firearm, well, a shotgun, which is not actually the same thing. But we're going to go to Concordance, who's been waiting very patiently. Concordance, then we'll come. I mean, you guys know I've, I've been working on this topic for a while now, and the poor video is, is languishing in, in script form. But I've done extensive academic reading on this topic, and I can tell you that you're all arguing the wrong topics. There's a fundamental disconnect in the dialogue, and that's what I hope to address with the videos. From 1776 to about 1960, the average number of guns owned by a household was a number less than, than one. Uh, number of people who owned guns was very, very small. Uh, when did we suddenly become awash in a sea of guns? 
Uh, and the good news is we're, we're heading back away from that. You know, fewer people are owning more guns. So there, the, the gun nuts out there are, are buying more guns, but there are fewer gun nuts than there used to be. I, I tell you my own theory based on what I'm reading, and it's not an outlandish theory, is the motivation behind the gun culture in America is fear, fear of our neighbor, fear of crime, fear of, and I'll just come out with it, racial tension, racial violence, the rise of urbanization and the explosion of desegregation, the civil rights movement, sold more guns. And you know who got particularly excited about that? The gun manufacturers. So they hired Don Draper and the thousands of Don Draper-like marketing specialists to create the American gun culture, to create this image of the uh, defiant Miniman, the, 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 the Minuteman revolutionary who was prepared at a moment's notice to run out and defend the nation against foreign invaders. In the 1940s, a couple of people took home their weapons from World War II. In the 1960s, a couple of people brought home their, their semi-autos, their 1917s, their, you know, their handguns to protect themselves against the, the crime in the cities and the, the r r rising racial tension between groups. I don't see that in the history of a lot of other countries who were not actively having a civil war. I think America has been sitting on a simmer cold war, if you will, uh, where everyone's basically prepared at any moment to defend themselves from everyone else around them. People sitting, you know, in a crowd are, are you know, looking out of the corners of their eyes. You know, has that guy got a gun? And it's true in Texas here. Who knows who the next loony is going to be? That's the environment. That's the culture that we are living in. And for that, you need a gun. And you need a gun because the other guy might have a gun. We've built this mutually assured destruction, this detente of supreme firepower. And it was all built on marketing. And it was driven by the gun manufacturers. And there's still an incredible force. They back the NRA. You see the rise of the NRA at about the same time. This is not an accidental gun culture. It didn't grow organically because it didn't exist before the 1950s. So we're having the wrong discussion. You know, Americans have always done it this way. We've always well, believed well, in the Second Amendment. Sir. That's not the case. I, I'm curious, um, Kunkunz, I know you've sort of like spotted that, but just in one sentence, what is the, in, if, if it was a title of debate, what is the discussion that we ought to be having? At what point did we let the marketing control us? Now, at this point, we can't change it. We're too far beyond. You know, too many people have it, and the fear has taken hold. But if everyone put down their guns, if everyone got rid of them, there would not be the drive to pick them back up. If the gun manufacturers had the power stripped away from them, we, we wouldn't be having this debate. If someone breaks into your house, you don't throw a hand grenade at them. That's it's what I call the hand grenade test. Why do you need a hand grenade? Because the other guy might have a hand grenade, Right. But they're terrible weapons for self-defense because they blow shrapnel in all directions. They're completely worthless in tight corners. Uh, you can't hunt with them, right? So why do we need hand grenades? Well, we don't. We don't want hand grenades out there. 
But if there were a strong enough hand grenade group and they said, that guy on the street may have a hand grenade, do you have a hand grenade? Then, yeah, we'd all be clamoring for the latest brand of hand grenade, right? Likewise, some of these guns are awesome and cool, and they market them with the idea that the guy walking down the street at you might have one of these. Do you have one of these? And that is what drives this relentless industrial marketing complex of gun manufacturer, NRA, and gun purchaser. The average person, the average member of the NRA, supports the kind of gun control because we all see it as sort of a walking away from this detente. I'll put my gun down if you'll put your friggin' gun down and we'll agree not to shoot each other. That's what we all essentially want. But no one can get there because well, there's a block. I'll, I'll tell you what, good ones. We might, I'm mad about all this. Yeah, we might dedicate an entire show to it, but um, just to remind people that we, um, can, um, sorry, Thunder and I, um, and uh, Aaron and David Small, we had a debate about this a couple of months ago. I will include a link in the description when it's posted on YouTube. Um, uh, to that debate where most of these issues um, were discussed. But the one thing I would agree with you, Concorns, is it's, um, it is such a cultural issue. Uh, it, it does cause huge problems. But I know that both Thunderful and Michael want to comment, so we'll go Thunderful and then back to Michael. But let me finish real quick, real yeah, quick. Sure. The, hand sorry, test, the hand grenade test is really a question of why is it that we want that weapon? You know, again, a hand grenade is custom designed to be bad at self-defense. Likewise, a number of the guns which are very popular are terrible self-defense weapons. They're, they're too long. They, they have too much recoil. They fire too many, you know, too many rounds in too short a period. There are reasons why we wouldn't want those in the hands of someone only interested in self-defense. And if we have alternatives to those weapons, which are by their very nature safer for people to have, then I think that the law, the policymakers, have a reason to step in because people on their own are not going to make smart choices about this. I honestly believe if hand grenades were legal and if hand grenade, manufa hand grenade manufacturers had the same kind of marketing budget that the gun manufacturers have, that there would be a rise in hand grenade ownership. And I think that we have to look at the weapon and say, is this something that people need? Are there alternatives to this weapon which serve the same purpose as effectively? If we can apply that hand grenade test to a weapon and say, there's really no legitimate reason for someone to want to shoot 100 rounds out of a cartridge. So um, your last point is very much where I stand on this concordance, that... Um what it really boils down to is uh, what properties do you want people to have in society? And one of the things that guns, one of the barriers that guns breaks down very easily, one of the properties that gives people very easily is the ability to kill other people in society. And this is um, not really a barrier that you want to break down. And this is the bit that, you know, Aaron keeps addressing this hyperbole, but it's not, um, is, uh, you know, how many other things like this 
would you actually want to encourage in society just to, to use your own arguments because they're novel um, uh, because you don't like the government telling you you can't uh, have it uh, no matter how uh, much you adhere to the laws uh, even though the laws might be very restrictive and it might be locked in a safe on your property. Um, you know, all of those arguments you could apply to, you know, concordance essentially used hand grenades. I use nerve agents. The reason I use nerve agents is because, you know, I'm a chemist and I know that you could want to own all of these things for novelty purposes and so forth. All right, they don't have that immediate cool feel, the mass appeal that that guns have but the bottom line is that you know you're one of your arguments here you might want to own it for the novelty um but the thing is that the the calculation that you're doing in your mind is is this um ability to easily kill other people in society actually something that we want to encourage um and guns really do break down those barriers in a way that other weapons don't. Okay, it's family show thunder. Put your weapon away. Um, we'll go and by to the way, just, just just so you know, on the on the point that uh, concordance was brought up earlier, that people want these things. You know, they bring them back from war zones. From yeah, and it gives them a sense of security. That's very much the reason that I have this. This is my going out into the wilderness knife, and it, you know. Makes me feel nice and safe. Mm, you must have a small penis. Um, we'll go Michael, then Aaron. Um, yeah, uh, I'd like to go back to what Concorns was saying about um, the attitude towards guns that's built up. And um, in any ways, I guess you could say that it's it sort of developed as a parallel to the sort of Cold War psychology in the building up more nukes, you know, in the same way that American citizens are getting more guns, more powerful guns, um, it's sort of like the prisoner's dilemma in that if everybody else gets rid of their gun and you have your gun, then you're capable exactly. of being completely yeah. safe. Yeah. But if they drop all their gun, if, you, if they keep their guns and you drop yours, you're going to get shot on the face and you won't be able to defend yourself. So it's sort of an, um, it's exactly the same as the Cold War, I think, in many ways, the gun control you, you debate. Hear, you hear that exact verbiage, right, which is um, sort of, you know, if... if we outlaw guns, only outlaws will own guns, or some variation thereof. Or we criminalize guns, only criminals will own guns. That's, that's the real concern, is, you know, either no one has a gun or everyone has a gun. And that is very much, and, and I kid you not, a, a marketing effort. That is exactly what the gun manufacturers want the message to be. Yeah. And their mouthpiece is the NRA, and the NRA is quite happy to advertise that, put it on you know, bumper stickers and uh, T-shirts and hats. And so pretty soon you've got a marketing force out there that is a true grassroots marketing organization. Uh, it's like, they're like bronies. <laughs> they're happy to it's, market the product. This is one of the arguments that exasperates um, me the I most. Very briefly, is this idea that, you know, we shouldn't outlaw these guns because then only the criminals will own them. I mean, if you apply the same sort of logic to anything in society, you know, well, what's the point of outlawing murder because people who are going to break the law are going to break it anyway? Um, a lot of things is people say that if you outlaw guns, only criminals will own them. But surely that would require a uh, sophisticated black market in guns. And I can understand how black market could develop for drugs or for alcohol, as in the Prohibition era and the drug war. 
but with guns, um, I don't really see how there's going to be a market big enough to buy black market guns in such giant quantities for it to really be worth the uh, time of criminal, you know, drug lords. I don't see how it's going to develop because it, I don't think it's developed in the UK. Um, yeah, I'm not exactly an expert actually, think, on the subject. I have to say, Michael, on that point, I think that you've been somewhat naive. Um, there is a black market in uh, guns, and also there is a market in hiring out guns. Um, uh, it, it does exist in the United Kingdom. The penalties are very severe, of course, but uh, don't don't be naive enough to think that it doesn't exist. It does. Yeah, I've seen Snatch. One of the points that I remember that we discussed, um, uh, it was very much towards the end of the debate that I referred to, and again, I'll post the links in the description when these are subsequently posted. But one of the comments that I raised with you, you, you in the course of this debate, Owen, you were suggesting that you wanted to own guns because you were sort of like a collector and they were interesting objects to you. And when I suggested to you, well, in that case, would you be prepared to have the firing pin filed away so they would be um, ineffective, not usable as a, as a weapon? You said absolutely not. Now, this is something I couldn't understand. What well, you, you that's exactly correct. I mean, if you're... You're either going to own the real weapon for its real ability and its real capacity, or you're going to carve one out of soap and pretend that that's just as good. Well, interesting, Polymath has posted in the comments some, some moments ago that now you can actually print off on a 3D printer a gun. Imagine yeah. when 3D printers become uh, available to the general public. Be, oh, they are. Oh, no. They are available to the general public. Okay. You can go out okay. right now and print off a 100-round uh, cartridge. Uh, anyone can. Absolutely everyone in this, no in this country has access to a 3D printer somewhere nearby. And, and so any, any laws regulating the size of a cartridge are going to be doomed to failure. I, I, you know, I it's a, it's a legislative nightmare. Right. Okay, so let, here's let, the thing. Owen, I've got to discuss this point first because okay. this is new to me. I didn't realize this. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. Well, firstly, I didn't know that people had access to 3D printers. But and the people behind it are very proud of themselves for showing how ineffective laws can be based on technological moves forward. I, to me, it's, it's a, you know, taking the genie out of the bottle. Now we're all screwed. We don't have any way of restricting it anyway. Right? Just, just because you can do it, um, if you're not going to enforce laws, then, <laughs> yeah, obviously they're going to be ineffective. Right, so you take any other example. If you don't prosecute um, theft, then obviously we are. What's the point about lawing theft, or you know, murder, or or, or ownership? Right. If 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 you can own these things and you're not going to prosecute it, then yeah, you're right. There's no point in having the laws. DPR, they're made out of plastic, a very high density plastic which is for all the parts of the gun except I think for the um, the actual chamber are can you, can you identical. Choose, can you choose the material? Can you, for example, put something into your 3D printer and make it out of latex? Hmm. Hmm. Do you know, I think penises were one of the very first things they made on 3D printers. I'm fairly certain of that because that's the human species, isn't it? Yeah. I wasn't listening about that at all. Michael, let's go back to you. Well, I thought we were supposed to go to me. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Yes. Right. Then next. Then so, next to let's say 
let's say that I, I, I suddenly have enough money that uh, my, my trivial expenses, every little whim that I want to do, I, I can suddenly do, and I don't have to explain or justify or weigh the values of it. There's a, there's a handful of guns that I would go out and buy right away. And uh, if, you know, we were in talking about DPR, you moving down to Austin, Texas. And if that were to happen, if I suddenly had a crap load of money, I'd certainly make it sure you could come down to Austin. And I would have these guns. They'd be brand new. I'd be excited about them. Let's come over, come to the range, and we're going to shoot these guns. And I've got my shotgun that shoots 14 rounds, and I've got my my Calico M950, and it's got 99 rounds of 9mm. We've got an expert range down for the, poli- for the police to use, where we've got all kinds of the pop-up targets, just like they used in the Men in Black movie, and we can just have a grand old time. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, bought, I spent all this money, and I had something filed down so it doesn't even fucking work. So no, I just wasted all my time. Misrepresenting the point that I made in that debate, you were you were talking about collecting them as uh, as collectible items, antiques almost, not as functioning. There are some that could be, and and also, uh, don't get me wrong. I ha- I would have no problem whatsoever with going to a firing range um, or um, a shotgun clay pigeon shooting or whatever you want, um, but I'd be quite happy to leave those firearms in lockable cabinets at the firing range and go home not have a gun at my home. So this is what I don't understand, why you have to have these items, they have to be functioning, and they could potentially kill people in your home. Because I don't want to leave my property in somebody else's locker off-site? That's ridiculous. So the first gun that I wanted to buy was I, I happened across this thing from that was a beautiful collector's item from the Civil War. It was an old shotgun, double barrel, side by side, with the very curly hammers on it. And it, 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 I looked at it, and I looked at the shape of the, the stock and all of this, and I realized, you know, if you saw this barrel down an inch or so after the stock, and if you were to saw the, the, the main part of the, hand, the, the stock off and just leave the handle, you'd have a perfect pirate pistol. And with a little bit of work, with a little bit of modification, I could turn this sawed-off shotgun into a 12-gauge pirate pistol with all the engravings and everything on it. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Now, of course, it's no good if it's not functioning. You can't legally have a sawed-off shotgun, but as I understand it, when you do something like this and you have the novelty of it, you can actually go explain the situation to a judge and get a permit to have that particular novelty item. So you can even have the illegal thing. So I can understand, I can even have the illegal gun as long as I explain the situation. I don't think that everybody need necessarily explain the situation. Why do they want to have a gun? I don't think we have to justify that because then we have somebody else making the determination as to whether or not our reason is good enough. Now, I understand. Yes, but some your, people... your, your, your um, position is that you think that tests should be done on people as to whether they should or should not be allowed to have guns. So you are making that. I criticism. think, I think, uh, well, it's not, the, it's not a test of the reason that they think they should have a gun. We're talking about the mental aptitude. That's another matter. And it's a broader matter. Okay. I now, see, Mike, one of the other things I want to add, well, if I got a well, chance. Yeah, please, please do, but then we'll go to Michael. Do carry on, Aaron. Okay. okay. Um, it's like, what, I don't respond. I, don't, I really sincerely don't think that advertising actually works on me. I don't think that it ever has. And neither does the culture of fear. That doesn't work. I know everybody around me is terribly paranoid and terrified of everything from everybody. I just don't get it. I'm not a fearful person like everybody else is. At the same time, I remember 
when we, we brought the, do you remember the Triumph Spitfire? I mean, we got a hold of one of these in 1972. It had one carburetor. I'm wondering, what, what's, why is it so wussy? Why is it so wimpy? Why doesn't this car have any power? Well, the government wanted to underpower these sports cars, so they wouldn't let you have all four of the carburetors. They only let you have one carburetor on it because of the American standards for, for, for restriction and all these. This is a Triumph Spitfire. How powerful could it be? It just seemed wussy that they would cut things. If I'm going to buy the car, let me have the car the way that it was made, that I can use it however I want. Why put all these restrictions on it? Well, what justifiable reason do you have for having a car that goes 90 miles an hour when the national speed limit is 55? I don't need to give an explanation for that. I'm an American citizen, damn it. I don't have to. Michael. Um, yeah, um... Uh, I'd like to have three questions, really, in um, reverse order of controversiality. Uh, Thunderthought, I saw your most recent video, and you were talking about how you were used to being clan gaming. And uh, what I've noticed is that the NRA does have a habit of diverting um, gun control uh, problems over to TV, movies, and video games. Uh, the second thing, uh, Thunderthought, I do agree with you, but I do find the um, idea that... Um, the murder is, you know, people do it anyway. But um, surely that is the same argument that people like me who are for drug legalisation use. For drug legalisation, it's difficult to enforce. And with guns, isn't that equally as difficult to enforce? So we, in a sense, perhaps it isn't worth right. the bother. So it, it, it's, it's always, it always comes down to a cost-benefits analysis. You know, how much, uh, if you uh, never actually commit to enforcing this, then, you know, to an extent, yeah, you're right, there's no point in having the law on the books, right? But, you know, conversely, um, to say that, well, criminals will break the law anyway, therefore we shouldn't bother enforcing the law is just a crazy argument. I know, but do a lot of people not say it's very difficult to enforce prohibition during the prohibition era? It was very difficult to enforce uh, drug control, therefore... Can, should... can I say something about that real quick? I don't know how many people have this misconception that, that prohibition was a complete failure. The level of cirrhosis deaths, the, the level of average consumption, drops so precipitously now, you can say, oh, it created the mafia. Well, the mafia existed before then. The general public health impact and the way that people live was impacted. And the primary effect of prohibition was to destroy the liquor industry. And in that sense, it was incredibly successful. Whether you like it or not, it was an effective piece of legislation. The idea that we shouldn't have a law because it's hard to enforce or it's going to affect a lot of people is not a compelling reason to do anything. Whether or not we think it's a worthwhile cause is a good question, right? It's the reason why we should make laws, but is it, but not is whether it, or not they're difficult. Is it really the government's place to just stand there and say um, that if you don't do this, it will be bad, it will be good for your health, therefore we're going to ban it? So Look, the, the government is people, right? These are not, we're, we're not a tyranny, we're not a monarchy, people voted on these things, enough people voted on uh, you know, the temperance movement managed to get enough uh, votes to get this thing passed you know, they didn't even have particularly they were fighting financial interest the whole way, so the level of alcoholism pre-prohibition was not achieved again, the level of alcoholic beverage consumption 
uh, pre-prohibition was not achieved again until the late 1970s. So for uh, questions from the chat, when was prohibition um, ended? Oh God, 1930-something? I have to look it it up. I think it was 1934. 34, something like that. Uh, By Roosevelt during the beginning of New Deal years, I think. But it was it was a long time, so it had a lasting impact, primarily on the industrial. Oh, so correct to me, it's 1933. So I'm sorry, I derailed. Go go back. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, as I was just saying, but during the Prohibition era, wasn't there um, essentially the alcohol that was being sold was low in quality, since there was no regulation. So if we ban guns, weren't the guns that are being sold, you know? Again, there'll be no regulation on those. So I like don't machine think, guns with multiple clips. I don't think that gun manufacture is something that um, the the quality is something that you greatly have to worry about. Yeah, most people who manufacture it's manufacturing guns. But that's is a not lot what I mean. Harder. That's not what I mean. Uh, what I mean is, currently you can get your normal assault rifle, but what if it's like, um, I don't know, light machine guns or incendiary ammo, shotgun attachments, you know, insanely deadly weapons that wouldn't be allowed in anybody's hands that they're getting because it's irregulated. Does it become a black market? I mean, well, I mean I'm sorry, I don't fully follow your point, Michael. Is that the problem in, in, in the UK? Uh, no, I guess them? actually the main problem in the UK is I mean, people have moved from a gun crime to knife crime. Uh, there's a lot more people getting stabbed. Uh-huh. Um, it's mostly so uh, it gangs. You're saying that the, the regulations in other parts of the world that restrict the ownership of guns have not resulted in uh, a greater increase in black market dangerous weapons. I know. I, I, it's, it's one of those cases where I don't actually... I'm sort of um, uh, sometimes arguing against my own position to try sure. and see if I'm correct. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I, I, that's I the best, that. that's I think the best that's evidence. Thing to do, but let me just give you one um, fact. Uh, the rate of gun crime, and again, this is something that came up in the discussion that uh, Aaron and others had um, that I mentioned before. Uh, 42 times the rate of uh, homicide in America than in the United Kingdom by, by uh, firearms. But on the other hand, uh, what actually, uh, I don't know if anybody knows what it is, but what is the actual uh, amount of people who are actually shot in the US? Over, over 8,000 a year. Uh, and what percentage um, is that? Actually, uh, it's, it's about 30 if you include all gun deaths. Just homicides, if I remember rightly, it's about 15. If, if you take away uh, gang shootouts from that and... Uh, you know, if, it, if, you t- if you just make it innocent civilians who aren't taking part in firefights, what would it be about them? Well, I've given you the figure, um, and I don't think uh, it's particularly easy to uh, redefine it in the terms that you're asking. Yeah, for. people who didn't deserve to die, I think. No, I don't mean didn't deserve to die. Thousand. I just. Well, you raised question, though. So, people in a gunfight. So, yeah. this, this is something that, again, um, it's a point that I raised uh, previously. Um, Gang shoot so if, you, if you're walking down the street and someone pulls a gun on you, you have a gun. You pull your gun. Now you're in a position where it's going to end badly. It can't end well. If someone pulled a gun on me, the fact that they did so um, would obviously not be something I wanted, but if they demanded my watch or my wallet or whatever, I would hand them over willingly. If I had a gun, or if anyone had a gun in that situation, as I say, it's... It, 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 it's likely to escalate into an unpleasant situation, is it not? 
Yeah, I, I, just to answer Michael's question very specifically, uh, I have seen the figures on that, and gang-related homicides do make up a large portion of gun-related homicides. It's true. I mean, it is largely a, a, a factor of gangs and gang violence yeah. and territoriality. So, so what I'm saying is perhaps regulating the civilian market for guns, perhaps the actual deaths it calls... Uh, is it really worth it? Because tea cozies kill about 20 people a year, but should be banned tea cozies. Do they? <laughs> yeah, people like um, doing things he shouldn't with, with thing, doing things he shouldn't, I guess. I you know the hell that you do that will kill you with the tea cozies. Let, let, me, let me respond to this. The, the difference between any examples like this, and I, I, I read this trope with, you know, the number of people killed by kitchen knives, the number of people killed by whatever, slipping in the shower. Those are all accidents. They're, they're unintentional uses of those items. They're, they're abuses of those items or they're misuses. The only use of a gun, besides target shooting, <laughs> is to put a, a pellet in someone else, right? So the a proper use of a gun results in uh, 8,000 deaths a year. The uh, proper you, use uh, you, of a tea doily is zero deaths a year, right? <laughs> it is not designed to kill people, and I think that that is one of the most fundamental concepts that is missing when you talk about the number of people killed by cars, the purpose of the car, if it's used properly, it kills no one. If it's used improperly, it kills someone. If you use a gun improperly, it doesn't kill anybody, right? If you use it properly, then it kills someone. Uh, hunting is uh, arguably the dual use for guns. But um, I would agree the majority of these, the, the guns that we're specifically talking about, them, when you're using them correctly, yeah, um, they they have limited limited functionality like that. Yeah, no one picks Dave. up a tea doily with the thought, "Hey, I want to kill someone with this," because that's not a use of a tea doily. You're completely ignoring the combat tea doily. Let's to armor. <laughs> the armor piercing cyanide tipped tea doily. It reminds Arlo, me of are this you with world, us? Uh, yes, I'm with you. We're moving on to our next caller. Arlo, are you with us? Yeah, I'm with you. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm very well indeed, and I'm intrigued by your question. It's one that I've yeah. discussed before, but um, uh, you hit us uh, with it first. All right. Uh, just to let you know, I am basically an advocate for proper use of the sexual fetish known as zoophilia, or bestiality. Um, now... I can understand why that should be immoral from a religious perspective, I, but I just don't understand. I'm a secularist myself, and I was wondering why it should be immoral from a secular perspective. I agree. Just, uh, just, well, just so we're clear. For me, because I, I, this is something that I have on, a, on another show, not this one, I think, uh, talked about, um, whether bestiality can be said to be um, morally wrong. And um, some people have raised issues of consent and whatever. But animals, on the whole, we um, tend to breed, kill, and eat. Yeah. If you think that you know we do that, we kill them and we eat them. What's wrong with having sex with them along the line? Um, from a moral point of view, I 
I can't see there's an obvious reason for saying that bestiality is wrong. Hmm. Well, I would agree with you. Hold on. There we go. Yeah. That was a quick call. Oh. I thought some people might have something to say. Thunder, I think you did. Yeah, only... Uh, well, firstly, Concordance has left, um, but uh, I think that's because dinosaurs are animals. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not being completely frivolous when I say that. I mean, we do, um, to a large degree, treat animals as we wish. Uh, we do breed them for our own purposes. We do slaughter them. We do. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that would be probably the biggest argument is that if you're, um, you know, happy to experiment on them and happy to kill them, um, you know, and make them live in inhumane conditions. Yeah. Like, like the meat market does. Just, just, just so you're clear, um, this is going to get so horribly quote-mined about the atheist's view on bestiality. <laughs> <laughs> I'm acutely aware of that, but don't worry, I'll edit it in such a way they won't be able to do it. But no, but, no, no seriously, um, but there again, um, what have the religious got to say? Um, I suppose there is something in Leviticus about you oh, yes. an animal, not only that person has to be stoned to death, but the unfortunate animal, innocent as it may be, or not, maybe the animal was sort of like encouraging um, the activity, the animal has to be put to death as well, which seems a little bit unnecessary, but um, I, I, I suppose it raises a more general point, doesn't it, about where we get morals from, um, and obviously I find it objectionable for a religious person to tell me that they get their uh, morality from their good book or their particular faith, because normally that morality is twisted and perverted. But in a more general sense, you know, what 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 makes something right or wrong? And I see board bits has now come online, so I might try and bring them into the conversation. Uh, I think it all depends on how rare you like your bacon. Do you want to expand on that, Alan? <laughs> no, my, my wife pointed out uh, what is sadly, in this case, a moot point, that bestiality is wrong because the animals cannot give consent. But, yes, but the, 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 I've heard that argument before, though, Alan, and the problem... Uh, I know, do, I know. They do not consent to being slaughtered and being eaten. And they, and, and they don't consent to the living conditions that they're, that they're in. It, I think the uh, the issue of of the the morality or the inexcusability of bestiality is going to be entirely separate from our treatment of animals in other in other senses. I mean, what we are inherently cruel to them, and it's uh, it's a real pathetic thing. My my stepdaughter is um, is pescatarian in protest of the uh, the meat industry. My son is becoming an activist against the meat industry. He he, he would like to compile a, uh, a a series of videos promoting animal rights in various capacities. And I just can't. So, What's that? Just so you know, um, uh, animal rights activists are the leading uh, form of terrorism in America. I think they're almost as much as everything else put together. Really? Absolutely. Well, uh, that doesn't. Uh, 
by necessity mean that their motives are uh, wrong, though, Thunder. Right. I, I, I'm um, acutely aware of, well, not acutely, no, I, I, I think the way animals suffer for us. And I'd say that my, my attempts, my, um, the way in which I do it is I, I buy free-range eggs. I refuse to buy any other eggs, which is... And now, see, we do that, we do much the same thing here. <coughs> much the same thing here. My, my stepdaughter will eat uh, meat products only if the, the labeling or the retailer can show so, something to imply that this was a free-range animal, that it was, that it was, it, that it was uh, raised open-range, you know, on, not in cages. You know, there's, there's labels from certain food industries where you can get where there's no cruelty involved, and we certainly don't want to do anything like what Kentucky Fried Chicken does with all the horrors about you know the way that they handle their chickens or, or the way that pigs are kept in cages so that they can't. So yeah, but there, there, there are two things here though. First of all, there is an anthropomorphization of your um, food here, that you know the way the chicken brain works is uh, you know akin to the way yours does that. It, actually feels um, it experiences the world in a similar way to the way that you do. And the second one is, if you were to apply that sort of reasoning to, say, for instance, beef, this whole species wouldn't exist had it not been for years of contrived and selective breeding. In fact, you could say the same thing about the chicken. You know, all these species wouldn't even exist if they weren't um, no manipulated, that's, that's not an excuse for abusing them. What people may disagree with is the way in which they are kept as they are when they are alive. And I do have an objection to animals being contained in um, tight environments. And um, yeah, let, let's talk about let's talk about pork for a moment but, because pigs are very intelligent animals. We 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 have okay. I I would agree with you on pigs. What about chickens? Well, let's not change the subject to something that's difficult to understand. Let's focus on something that is. That's why I said let's talk about pigs, because you're saying that I'm making this assumption that these animals experience the world in a similar way that I do. Pigs do experience the world in a similar way that I do. So when you have these highly intelligent animals and you keep them in confined cages that are so tight that they can't even turn around, what happens? They go insane. This is not fair treatment. Now, People are all against, you know, genetically modified foods and things like that. However, I believe that, you know, that, that and, I mean, there's actually, they're actually making advances of this. They will be able to grow meat in pans shortly. And, and, and how, how much further is it away from, you know, flavoring? <coughs> so, I mean, if they can actually do this, that's great. We can move away from killing these animals and we can have additional you know, nutrients added to these things. We can create our own food in some way. That would be wonderful if we could do that. I don't like the barbarism that we have to put to animals. I don't, I don't like the idea of having to hunt wild animals either. But if you're going to keep animals for food purposes, at least you don't have to be cruel about it. You don't have to chop off the ends of the chicken's beaks, for example. When when they're when they're they're young, just so that they don't peck each other to death, and they keep them in tiny cages where they can't move, and they're walking on wire their whole lives. It's, uh, it's the, right, the, the, the one that I would especially agree with you with is, is pigs, and pork is the only, if you like, uh, it's it's the only meat that I will specifically avoid, um, 
in that you know cows and sheep as far as i don't know as far as i know don't have the same level of self-awareness and arguably self-awareness is you know there is a hierarchy of these things you don't feel um uh, an issue about keeping fish in cruel environments because no, but something that you and i may what you may even want to dedicate an entire lobsters to. lobsters say for instance you know, a, lo a lobster, you can sort of chop holes in their shells, stick probes into their, you know, their protobrain, their ganglia, um, and just put something in front of them. And they're, they're, they're an autopilot. They'll just start eating away happily. Yeah, I was very uh, interested in what Aaron was going to respond to, though. You said that it may be something that we, and then... Yeah, we, we might want to dedicate a, a show to the, and we, maybe we did years ago, but I don't think we explored it very deeply. The bias that we have that obviously Thunderfoot and I share, whereas I, I love pork chops, I love bacon, I like pork sausage and pork ribs and all of that. However, the, 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 the issue that I have with that is that did I know from firsthand experience how intelligent pigs are, and that makes, me, that makes it harder for me to eat them. Uh, I have similar feelings for elephants as I do for dolphins, and so I find it abhorrent that... that these animals are slaughtered for any reason. There's, there's a bias toward the intelligence. Can I, can I, well, this is what I was going to press you on, if I may, Aaron. Why, why is it that you've selected um, those particular species? Is it because you uh, consider they have a, a, a greater sentience? than? No, they do. I mean, ele elephants, uh, hugely so. Elephants probably even have a, a sense of mortality and you know, an awareness of death. Pigs, I don't think, are that far along. Um, but elephants, um, you know, there are these tests, you put up a mirror and put a mark and if they actually realize that the reflection is themselves, you know, this is not um, uh, a level of awareness that many animals have. But what, um, what I struggle with is this, <coughs> excuse me, I understand that argument, but um, when it comes to pain and suffering, I imagine that a less sentient entity um, would suffer pain and discomfort in the same way. So I, I, I struggle to see why you differentiate it on the basis of sentience as opposed no, to... No, but that's the thing is they, is, is, is they don't. Um, yeah. Yeah, this, this is... Yeah, you go He's right. He's right. If they, they, don't, they don't have awareness so they can, while they can experience physical pain, they do not experience terror. What about um, a fox then? Because I'm opposed to fox hunting. And I remember someone who was a proponent of fox hunting saying that uh, a fox doesn't feel terror and uh, whatever when it's being hounded by a load of fucking hounds and things. Um, uh, well, I, I would have to say I, that... I have to say that I disagree with that. Now, are you saying I would we're all less sentient than a pig? And by what metric do we judge sentience? Well, we know that a fox is a canoid and that in every other lateral position in carnivora, the animals are extremely intelligent. They're not up there with pigs and apes and, uh, and crows and elephants, but they're up there. Um, they're, they certainly are at a point where they can feel uh, terror and, and fear, and we can see that. We can observe it and test it and demonstrate that they're capable of these feelings.
I think a fox feels fear when it's being hunted by a But our Aaron, no, not Aaron, sorry, DPR, let, let's take this down a few notches. Slugs. Sure. Do you think that slugs feel terror? Um, they're aware of their environment uh, to a degree. I accept there is a different level of sentience, but uh, what I am not right. comfortable what I'm not comfortable doing is saying that there is a metric by which we can judge with any degree of certainty the level of sentience that they have. I personally well, think no, the, 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 the fox that is being hunted feels as much terror and fear, and the adrenaline is pumping away in its poor little body as a pig would do when it's being taken to the slaughterhouse. Uh, well, actually, there you're quite wrong because uh, most slaughterhouses are designed. It was a so bad they, they, yeah. they don't feel terror. Yeah, but you yeah. get my point. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's any sensible way of differentiating the fear that a uh, fox would have when it's being hunted um, and a pig uh, could have. I, I, I don't know because I don't know how you would measure this. No, uh, but this is this is the thing that there are, if you like, um, if you have no sense of mortality, um, you know, you just have the sensation that you don't want to die. Um, is that a different level of fear? Yeah, you know, if you don't have this sense, this advanced sense of self, you know, you've got to be very careful that you don't project that sense of self that you have onto other animals and say that it feels the same way. Um, but that seems to be what you are doing in relation to a pig, but you're saying that I can't do that in relation to a fox. Right, so the, the, there is, if you like, a, a hierarchy of these things. And how do we judge that hierarchy? By what metric? Do right, we so, so, so the, the, there are various levels. You know, do they have a sense of death? Do they actually well, appreciate... Well, how do you know whether a pig has a sense of death or not? You are projecting uh, your views uh, uh, upon an animal. I can understand why and the reasons that you may come up so, with. Right, uh, so you, there, there, there are a series so of these things. Like, so, for instance, elephants will actually mourn the death of... That's exactly the example I thought you would give, and you are projecting. You are right. Oh, right. So the, you, 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 right. that they've got so, an understanding of death, but you can't say for certain that they do. Nor can you say that a pig would. Or nor can you say that a fox would not. Uh, anyway, well, yeah. But if, if, if you've never observed any uh, behaviour in foxes that could be equated to mourning, then you're obviously got a much weaker case than, for instance. For but elephants, what you do? You're projecting your views of uh, well, all that you have bones of a dead relative as mourning. Uh, yeah, the, the, this, this is the thing, DPR. The only thing that you've actually got that'll give you insight into the animal's mind is either putting in a CT machine and observing it directly, or its behaviour. Yes. Okay. Um, we we agree on that. Um, Board's board was going to come and uh, tell us why bestiality is morally wrong. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. Well, I, it was it wasn't beast. It's a general point that um, we've evolved to a level socially where it's our responsibility to not abuse animals in any way. Um, we we tend to abrogate our moral moral but, responsibility. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa. What? <clears throat> you go any further? Um, why? Why do you say that? Well, why would you why would you want to inflict unnecessary pain on any creature? 
how, how would that where would that rate you socially if somebody if said oh here's true. a really nice person apart from the true. torturing of cats if that were true i'm not saying that it's um uh, necessarily a, a product of evolution why i mean no, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, said, I was talking about social evolution not not biological evolution We've evolved far beyond um, biological evolution in society, haven't we? Um, we like to think that we have. I'm not entirely sure that we... Well, we have. I mean, a society, morals and ethics, they are the veneer of, of sitting over the top of our evolutionary imperatives, aren't they? We like to think that they are. Uh, arguably, you know, a lot of the things that... You know, the treatment, of, say, for uh, the ethical treatment of animals you could very well argue is a, a misfiring of an evolved um, behavior. Uh, you know, there is nothing to be gained um, in an evolutionary sense by whether you treat animals well or not. And in fact, you know, the, the, the way that I would, one example that you might give of this is um, elephants. You know, they they treat each other fairly well, but and they're very intelligent. But if you piss off an elephant, it'll kill you, and it'll do it without sort of apparently any sense of remorse or anything. I agree, but I mean we're we're in a position where we no longer um, it isn't the strongest survive. You know, if if you have an argument with somebody who's a, a physically a smaller specimen than you and you don't agree with them. You try to debate them. You don't pummel them to the ground and get them to roll on their back and submit to you. That you know. Yeah, it's also there's also that. a correlation uh, of intelligence to fear. I think, in that you know you you are going to be more compassionate as a mammal because you were raised uh, in an, in an initial state of dependence, and so you have a degree of empathy just by your your surroundings. But then we also know that there's a physical component built into our brains in the prefrontal lobes and in mirror neurons and so forth, that we have a degree of empathy for other animals. We are a social animal, as are elephants and dogs, so that we know the value of individuals beyond ourselves, and we, so we show compassion, and we know better than to just suddenly tear into somebody else's children, you know, because they, they do some petty annoyance, because we know that that's not what's going to be in our best interest or theirs, and we're able to make a distinction between them. So social animals and social mammals of high intellect do all share that capacity. I think you hit on something there, Aaron. I think it's the empathy is an important part of what separates us from some animals. And that empathy should extend to all aspects of our lives. I mean, if you had a next-door neighbor who spent the weekend tearing animals apart with his bare hands or her bare hands, you'd probably consider that person slightly unhinged at the very least. And you probably wouldn't have them around babysitting. So, we, you know, the way people treat animals does reflect on them as a person, I think. This is true. Uh, people who are cruel to animals are are, I think, uh, typically also seen to be cruel to anyone else that is uh, seen of, of lesser strength than them. You know, children... Um, uh, I, would, I would disagree with this. Um, and 
for um, widely historic reasons. Maybe the most archetypal one is there was this book release, I forget what it was called. Um, it was basically the letters that the people in the death camp sent back to their families. And people uh, have an absolutely phenomenal ability to compartmentalize their brain to the point where they can quite easily be killing um, you know, Jews and political dissidents all day and go back and you know, be loving and caring to their families. Uh, I, want you know, to, I want to pick up on echo uh, what Thunderfoot just said because I, I, I struggle to agree with the sentiment that we have become socially wonderful um, entities as human beings. Um, I, I was going to refer to this book, I'll include a link to it. Uh, I don't know whether that's backwards or not. World Conflict. Uh, unfortunately, it uh, was published in 1999, so it only goes up to 1998. World Conflicts, um, and you can see how thick that book is. Every single country you can look at, man is killing man. Where is this wonderful social aspect that we have, that you know, we're morals, we're above all of this? No, the reality is we're not. We're very primitive, and our, our um, resolution of problems seems uh, to be mainly violent. Now, I, I would uh, partially disagree with that. Um, the thing is that we do have this property where we can um, dehumanize and be very cruel to even our fellow humans, um, but at the same time, be very, we, we, we have this ability to be very caring to our families at the same time that we would say, for instance, go off and be fighting exceptionally bloody battles where you are showing absolutely no compassion whatsoever to the people you are killing and then come home to your family and be very gentle with your child. But, but in that case, when you're doing that, you actually have a, a psychological structure. So the, the conflict resolution in your brain that's, that would normally say this is wrong isn't because you're, you know, I'm just following orders or I'm following a belief or, uh, you know, I'm following my tribe's requirements. Whatever they are, they, they would allow you to compartmentalize in that way, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the, the obvious origin of this is... The, the necessity of propaganda. No, no. Um, it's that if you are actually um, part of a relatively small band and you're about to be raided by you know, the only thing that can really threaten a small band like that, and that's another small band of people, um, you have to be able to... Um, you know, fight them off. And in order to do that, you have to um, be willing to do whatever is necessary to do that. And that's frequently very brutal. And that doesn't, uh, doesn't change the fact that you still looked after your family and the little social group that you came from. Yeah, that's the us and them mentality, isn't it? That's the five steps to tyranny, which is Aaron Ra said, that's propaganda, and that's what that feeds into, which is separate to the individualist in your street who's ripping the heads off chickens. In a, you know, He may have his own personal us and them, but in that case, it's him against the world, which is somebody you want to watch anyway. 
um, again about the people going out and compartmentalizing being able to um, take the death camps wherever uh, the point is that they've they have been propagandized into this us and them mentality so they've gone through the the five steps to tyranny where they've dehumanized the other um the other combatants and therefore that, they're a separate entity to them if i may just clarify uh, perhaps hopefully clarify what i've said before um this idea that um we are wonderful moral creatures um we we simply aren't and you just need to look at history to show that the, the Inhumanity that man can deal upon another man is indicative of the fact, in my view, that we are far, far from moral. Yeah, well, that's why I said we have this th very thin veneer, uh, which, which I always talk to people and I say, if, if the power failed, you know, we'd see that veneer disappearing within a month. When the food runs out, that veneer of um, civility and morals and ethics that we have would just be washed away. Um, and the people who um, adhered, to, adhered to current moral standards would fall by the wayside. Yes. Yeah, they, they say that any society is five meals away from revolution. Um, and in that sense, I, I agree completely that, um, and I think this is probably something that they ought to teach in schools, um, is, is people grow up assuming that the world is infinitely stable and that there will always be food there. Um, th this is just not true. These are, if you like, luxury items that are provided by safe and stable societies. So people really need to appreciate the value of a safe and stable society. Now, you know, uh, th there are ways you can appreciate this just by, say, you're going to talk to someone, say, for instance, from Iran, and they will tell you that, you know, you don't know what the country is going to look like in six months' time. You don't know what the prices are going to be the next time you go to the supermarket. Um, it's a very volatile way to live. It's a very uncomfortable way to live. And people who have lived their entire lives in a sort of stable first world democracy. Um, you, you know, I, I think they've become habitualized to the fact that everything is safe, safe, stable, and happy. And this is, um, that, that, that I think, um, that they lack an appreciation of how things could be. And the same goes for food. Um, yeah, especially people who are, um, I'm just going to say delinquent for convenience. Um, but people who are, are basically, almost contemptuous of the society in which they live uh, without really appreciating uh, you know, what it's like to be cold and hungry. And you know, cold and hungry is one of those things that I think everyone should feel at least once in their life just so you have an appreciation of um, how nice it is to actually be well fed and warm. No, I, I, I totally agree. And the Milgrid experiment and the Stanford experiment and things like that do show just how, how thin the veneer is. I think it's also important to note that the, the, that thin veneer of morality and ethics we have now. Yeah, I was just saying that, you know, it, it is a very thin veneer, but I think we should also remember that the, the, the thin veneer of ethics, morality, whatever you want to call it, behavior that we have is not based on religion. 
um, you know, the, the the Christian right in America who go on about America was based on Christian values. Yes, it was. Slavery, child labor, child marriage, uh, women having no property rights or uh, whatsoever. It, it's secular morality and secular uh, humanist principles which have dragged us to where we are. We've still got a long way to go. Um, I, I can think, for instance, I can imagine quite easily, for instance, uh, from the early discussion, that 100, 200, 500 years from now, people will look back to us eating any animal food at all, any meat at all, and just think of us as, as barbaric primitives. How could people ever eat animals when there was no need to? While this did turn into a worthy topic of discussion, it does not in any way address the question that was originally asked, which was uh, talking about bestiality. Before we get on to anything else or the next caller, I want to just put a, a quick comment on the original question, and that is that bestiality uh, is wrong for sexual reasons, not having anything to do with animal cruelty. It's, um, it's, it is that, that healthy sex should be between equals. Uh, let's take our last caller. What have you got for us? Well, I'd like to talk about the right to die, especially, well, in the news lately, we've got things like the care not killing alliance and Peter Saunders. And when the Nicholson case came, he basically said that there's no need for assisted suicide because he, he already has the right to starve himself to death. So congratulations, Peter. You've made Al-Qaeda look compassionate. That says pretty yes, much uh, this is pretty a topic I think we discussed with um, Andy uh, Copson, who, was, uh, who is the uh, executive director, or I think that's the right title, of the uh, British uh, Humanist Society in, in this country, and someone who has uh, agreed to appear on a, a future show, so we hope to get him back on. And one of the topics that I <coughs> was going to um, raise with him um, when he does come back on is exactly what you're referring to. Um, I think that it is um, a very interesting topic. It's one we have discussed, and I'm more than happy to uh, discuss it again for the next few moments. I think that um, it's bizarre, is it not, that you are um, supposed to have so many rights, but when it comes to death, you cannot choose the way in which you want to die. Um, and there are those who will say, oh no, we've got to keep you up, we'll do everything we can to keep you alive, even though you may be suffering. Well, no, I think there's a rather obvious point here, DPR, is that um, this is a one-way ticket, and if people make a bad decision because they were, you know, feeling blue that day, um, that um, by preventing someone from killing themselves, you're actually doing them a service. So if you stop them killing themselves on Monday, and if by Wednesday, you know, they've realized that they're getting dumped by their girlfriends, not the end of the world, you've actually done them a service, right? That's so, situation, I, I that that's such a shabby comment. We're talking about people Why? who have been... Because we're not talking about that sort of person. But, but no, no, no. You, when, when, you, when you framed the right to, uh, to death, you, you framed it in, you know, we have all of these rights to, uh, you know, life, and there are all these people... Just trying... 
It's a fairly significant corollary. This is not sort of some sort of shabby, shabby little argument. This is actually kind of, um, you know, crucial. We we all have the right to kill ourselves um, in this country. Um, suicide is not legal. Um, I don't think they prosecute you for it anymore. Uh, the difference is, yeah, uh, those people they, who they, are. Uh, it's giving people a clean way to die with dignity and especially those people who are not in a position to easily take their own life. How do they do it painlessly? I think it is the most important discussion we should be having. I think it's up there with the abortion question. I think these are two of the biggest moral issues that should be being discussed. But with the right to die, there are, there are I think, very easy ways, safeguards that can be put in place. Um, you can have a, a, this cooling off period where uh, the person is monitored on a weekly basis and asked, the, you know, their mental state, etc. Because, as you say, even if you're in a serious illness, to take a, take um, Hawkins, for instance, you know, if he was to decide he wanted to die, um, it could be was it because he was in a serious state of depression, which lasted a period of time. The, the problem is, if somebody is in depression, how long do you, you know, how long do you try to get them out of that depression before you say, oh, no, okay, kick the bucket? And it's also one of these ironies that, um, yeah, that if um, lucid people tend not want to kill themselves, um, uh, but, you know, if you are... Um, yeah, okay, so the, there's a couple of things. The first is you obviously want the safeguard from uh, relatives being able to influence the, the, the process. Um, that you, because if people are enfeebled, so you're, you're they're about not... technicalities now. Let's talk about rights. If you are uh, in a position where you do not want to live, but you are incapable of killing yourself, do you think it is appropriate that in the right circumstances, with all the right safeguards in place, that that person should be well, able this is to not, the, the, that they have their life ended? This is, yeah, this is where I sort of got, that if you're actually completely lucid, uh, and you've worked it out, uh, you, you have, say, a terminal disease, that life's painful, you know, got no real, you know, you don't, you know, it's not going to get any better. You want to die? Sure, why not? But okay, you know, here's, a, here's another example. Here's, here's another example. If I could throw this out there, somebody had just mentioned Hawking a bit ago. Does it necessarily have to involve pain? Uh, he's only he's only lucid by our understanding because he has the function of I think one remaining muscle in his entire body with which he can use his communication apparatus. Uh, and Christopher Hitchens wrote that losing his voice was like losing himself. Now, if if Hawking loses that one muscle and he's no longer able to communicate at all, I would think, being Hawking, that my I would just have already put it in a will that if I ever lose the function of that one cheek muscle, that I would want to uh, get an overdose of an anesthetic. I mean, if if you've already lost every other capacity of life, that to lose communication, your ability to be human with everybody else, 
I think would be too much on top of everything else. It would be like that that horrible song from uh, from Metallica. That's the situation you'd be in. And yeah, I think suicide is justifiable in that situation. Yeah, I'd like to add one other thing to again as a just as a personal note. Uh, when you we're talking about dying with dignity, uh, in many degenerative diseases are going to leave you in an undignified situation as well as uh, in, in an insufferable pain from which we're losing the ability to to anesthetize and have there be any value in your still breathing. I was present at my father's demise, and um, you know DPR knows this well because I shared it with him, but my father was given a number of hours in which he would still be a lucid person and that he would only have scant hours after that in which he would no longer be alive. And it was enough time to gather all of his friends and the people who most respected him, and it was... I, I can't imagine a better way for any human to go out of this world. It was He was in a room full of people that had loved him his whole life and who shared their respect for him and who took his last wishes, and he was fully cognizant and sober, and when he began to feel the, the effects of the drugs taking over, he threw us all out of the room because he wanted us to remember him as the respectable man that we all knew. And that's the way everybody deserves to go out if they, if they can. And I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I can think uh, in many ways, um, you know, a bit of warning and uh, a relatively sudden death is a far um, more desirable way to go than you know, any of these um, uh, things that where you lose your capacity over weeks and months. And then comes the real question um, for me is when do you say that someone is no longer capable of saying, I want to die? Thunder, I don't know why Ask you're doing this deliberately or not. We're talking yeah, there's, about people there's, who are quite aware of exactly what's going Right, on. okay, we've done that one, right? But, I, I think but the answer is so obvious. How do you know when they're capable? Ask them. Yes. But if someone's actually lost their mind... Then we're not talking them. about that case, though, Thunder. Well, I think... Uh, no, no, the thing is, DPR, that... The point that you're talking about, we've all sort of discussed, and I think have concordance on. The bit that it gets more difficult on is, you know, when this person, um, when um, their mind has degraded as well, you know, when do you say that they don't have the ability anymore to say, I want to die? But, but that isn't the question. The question is the right to die for people who are compass mentis and want right. to die with dignity, but are do not have the means to do it themselves, which in, you know, you don't have. Well, I have to disagree with you about the courts. I think the courts should have made it legal because, for one thing, the DPP isn't going to charge anyone because of jury nullification. When 80% of the population is in favour of it, there's next to no chance of the jury convicting anyone. I, I, I'm I have to disagree with you from the get-go there. Um, that is not the appropriate way in which to change the law. To rely on the fact that a jury would be sympathetic to the person responsible uh, is, is a shabby way of, of trying to change the law. And it, it, it wouldn't actually change the law at all. All it would do would be a, a jury returning a not, uh, 
guilty verdict. And I think the, in, in, in the law needs to be changed, and it needs to be changed with clarity. And I think that the best way of doing that is through an act of parliament as opposed to uh, a judge-made decision um, on yeah, the it is not a situation wherein a judge or a jury can decide that someone has broken the law, but it doesn't matter because he had good reason. If you've broken the law, they're still going to have to judge that you've broken the law. They can give you a substantially reduced penalty, but that's the best yeah, they can and, offer. And, and the, other, the other thing as well, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce your name. The other thing no, is you're not, you're not going to get um, uh, doctors willingly um, going through a process saying, oh yeah, well, you know, this is what the person wants. If I get convicted or if I get tried, charged and tried, then a jury will feel sympathetic for me, therefore I'm going to take that chance. That is, that's a shabby, shabby way of trying to change the law. So I'm sorry, I do disagree with you on that point. Well, that's the point, is the law wouldn't be changed. The law would still be there and the sentence would just be, you know, um, dropped because of mitigating circumstances. It would mean that everybody who went to court... It may not be dropped. Why do you think it would be dropped? Oh, no, no. Well, I'm I'm saying in in, in the case that it was. Can anyone explain to me why it is that we have an overwhelming majority of people demanding the right to die with dignity? I mean, this is overwhelming, right? I mean, this is practically everybody wants this choice, do they not? I think there are what? two reasons. The first is one which Thunderfoot identified earlier, that there are people who do go through the vicissitudes of life and have down moments where they think that perhaps they don't want to live and um, those people should be treated as opposed to uh, assisted in, in uh, killing themselves. Uh, secondly, I think that religion has got a lot to do with this. Because what is the one thing that every single religion always says? Suicide is a sin. Yeah, but then, then again, if this is a decision, if this is a decision that all of the best, the best minds in the world and the most sympathetic and deep thoughts all, all align and all agree that this is the best thing and everybody wants this and we all understand why this is justifiable. If there's some other agency that says, no, we want to do the exact opposite of everything that makes sense, yes, it would have to be religion that would be filling those shoes. I, I think it is, also, it is a fairly new thing because life expectancy has climbed. And, as, uh, and it will, I think this um, issue will gather momentum in coming decades as um, life expectancy pushed towards 100 and over 100 there are people who are going to say what is my quality of life um, and so I think this will come back um, in future years if not decades but I don't even think that people have to provide all that much reason for it when we have you know, we have 7 billion people on the planet and if you feel really really strongly then maybe it's just a situation where you should be able to explain your case or a, you know, appeal for a judgment for that right, and 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 have it be granted that way. Maybe you could have it that way, and it, even even if you're just feeling bad because you don't feel that you have a purpose. I don't know. I just want to uh, add a bit on uh, Bordbit's um, point about this being a progressive problem. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, back in the good old days, which is when I was young, um, being young, getting old was something that only happened to you if you were lucky. Um, 
there were relatively few times when this was an issue. Um, now, I've actually had two grandmothers who were over a hundred, and to be honest, uh, you know, if I were either of them, uh, I I would have um, I, I would have punched my ticket at about ninety-five. After that. Yeah, they essentially became living skeletons. And let me ask they, you a question: they, 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 Have you ever seen Harold and Maude? I'm sorry. Have you ever seen Harold and Maude? No. It's a movie I recommend. Check it out. We will do that, Darren. Uh, but we do have a call, and I uh, did promise we'll go back to. Him. Um, let's get back. Thanks. Um, I, I guess the last thing I really have to say is that. If life was always worth living, as the pro-choice lobby seems to imply, then we wouldn't have any suicides at all. So their position is prima facie ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of somebody who's either got a progressive disease or is deteriorating as a natural aging process, but towards the end of their life, three independent doctors all agree that their either medical condition or whatever is you know the prognosis is it's going downhill from here and they don't have the quality of life and therefore they're given that chance to go out with dignity yeah we, yeah we're not talking about somebody who says as thunderfoots you know my girlfriend left me i can't live anymore i've started listening to nirvana again <laughs> 